0: have heard the words open, fair, both sides of the story. It's easy to say them, but practicing them often seems like a bridge too far. New Zealand, it's time for a reality check. Reality, reality check. RCR, reality check radio, rational discussion, common sense, and open debate for real With me, Paul Brennan. You know, you just can't make this stuff up. You couldn't write the script. Veteran broadcaster Peter Williams.
1: Where is the evidence they actually make a difference?
2: It turns out that was a very fair question to ask. Taking on the
0: mainstream, Chantel Baker.
3: Mainstream media, as usual, in their little perch.
0: The man who cares so much and whose background is for real. Rodney Hyde. The doctors don't believe them. They can't get acc They can't work. They're told it's all in their head. Along with a raft of contributors to inform, entertain and bring the truth back to New Zealand media. It's time for a reality check, all right. RCR, reality check radio at www.realitycheck.radio. We've arrived.
4: Rational discussion, common sense, open debate, RCR, Reality Check Radio with Paul Brennan.
0: Good morning, everybody. I hope you had a great Easter long weekend. I'm Paul Brennan. This is Reality Check Radio. Now, every now and then, you might hear rain lashing at my windows. It's been raining cats and dogs and wellies this morning, so just uh, giving you the heads up on that. If you're thinking there's this funny noise in the background, it's probably going to be rain, but at the at this very moment, it's not raining. What have we got on the program for you this morning? Well, an interesting mix. Very shortly. We'll dive right into the Normie News, our tour of mainstream media, Normie News. Back from the break, we'll see what the Normie sites are saying this morning. And then Phil Shaw from Operation People. And we're talking to Phil this morning, following the weekend, I guess, hit piece in the Herald, Big Read, The Life and Alternate Realities of Chantel Baker. We're not going to specifically talk about the story because... Uh, I hope to be talking with Chantel in the next day or so about that. We'll see how that goes. But what I do want to get from Phil Shaw from Operation People, who has a background, of course, in special operations, SAS, Intel gathering. He did a deep dive on this program a week or two ago now into the disinformation project. I want to get his view on how all this is forming up when you've got the media as it is, as exemplified by the piece on Chantel. When you've got institutions of state, that is the disinformation project, the police, the SIS, the political establishment itself. Then you've got uh, activists uh, who are using quite inflammatory and I would say potentially dangerous rhetoric. Where is this going? Is it a threat to our way of being, to our nation. I'll be talking to Phil Shaw in about 20 minutes regarding that. Then our special guest this morning, Dr. Peter McCullough, one of the world's leading cardiologists and one of the main speakers on COVID vaccination harm. We're going to cover quite a few bases. Uh, I look forward to catching up with Dr. McCullough within the hour or so. Then we're going to revisit a ruling by Justice Cook regarding the mandate against those in the education profession. There is an appeal of his ruling that overrode sections in the Bill of Rights. I'll be talking with Rachel Mortimer of NZT SOS New Zealand teachers speaking out for science, and Dr Alison Goodwin, who attended the original hearing and has read the judge's decision. They'll be talking about their effort to appeal That decision from last year. And before we're done at 10 this morning, I'll be talking to Dr. David Bell, originally from Australia, currently located in the United States. He's a public health physician with loads of experience working all around the world for all sorts of different organizations on all sorts of different programs, including the WHO. He's been on the inside of that organization, he has some fascinating insights into it. And also on the COVID journey of the last few years, I'll be talking with him before 10 this morning on Reality Check Radio. And I have some of your emails from over the last few days uh, heading into the weekend, and we'll share some of those. And we'll try and get to uh, some social media if we've got some time before 10.00 as well. A quick break, and then we're back with our look at the mainstream media, Normie News, for Tuesday morning, April 11th on RCR. One person's hate speech is another person's truth, and I would much rather allow extremists to have their horrible say than shut down all of society in a vain attempt to stop what we might consider
1: to be extremism. So
5: if you classify one thing as hate speech, then that can, that can stretch and it grows into so many other areas, and who gets to control it? And that's the
0: problem. Bare-faced abuse could be considered hate, I'm no fan of that. But calling out things that we disagree with, or activities that are obviously questionable, isn't hate
2: speech, that's free speech. And to have government tell us what we can and cannot say, what we can and cannot impart as opinion, uh, is just an outrageous attack on democracy
4: and on freedom. Rational discussion, common sense, open debate, RCR, Reality Check Radio with Paul Brennan. And it's that time again.
0: All right, it's time for a look around the mainstream media sites for this morning's Normie News. It is the 11th of April, and we start with auntie nzherald.co.nz. Why not after what they had to say about Chantelle Baker Over the weekend, and I go into the page, Tasman Tornado, 50 homes damaged after unreal tornado strikes near Nelson. Thankfully, fire and emergency. Fens says there's no reports of serious injuries following the weather event that hit at about 120 yesterday, but roofs have been partially or fully lifted. On many properties, while others have been impacted by fallen trees or power lines being down, the worst hit area has been Upper Moteri. Fenn said it was continuing to assist people and liaising with the local council and Nelson Tasman civil defence. Reports of damage in houses, missing roofs are coming from Upper Moteri, Marpur, and Richmond. And this tweet is included from the Med Service. And what do you know, the Wellington rain radar is still being upgraded, so there isn't proper radar coverage. But there is some gnarly weather out there, despite the lack of rain echoes. OK, so no rain echoes, but it's gnarly. I guess that makes it official or made it official from the med Service. And even in the background, you might hear the rain hitting my windows at the moment. It's really bucketing down as I go through the normie news. I could have looked at the rain radar, but that's being upgraded. But yeah, it does sound gnarly. The first cup is the deepest. They have this story. Sir Rod Stewart gets tattoo in Auckland to celebrate victory of beloved Celtic football club. He's 78 now, Sir Rod. He's capped his Swan Song New Zealand tour, the Herald tell us by getting a tattoo from an Auckland artist. Sir Rod is a huge fan of the team, which triumphed over Rangers FC in a dramatic 3-2 victory at the weekend. The two Glaswegian clubs share a legendary rivalry, dubbed the Old Firm. On Monday, the day after the final leg of what will be his last Kiwi tour before a sellout crowd at Auckland's Vector Arena, Stewart's Instagram page posted a photo of the pop and rock legend getting a tattoo to celebrate the club. Getting a Glasgow Celtic tattoo in Auckland to celebrate my beloved team. You're in my heart, he posted. And there's a picture of Rod looking a bit blown out and some chap. I guess the tattoo artist realises it's Rod Stewart. He's there with his yellow beanie on and the tattoo machine giving it a go. And Rod's wearing the Celtic um, name on a necklace he's wearing. In fact, the Herald tell us the tattoo artist appears to be Ray Waller who operates out of the Seventh Day private studio in Auckland's Parnell. Oh, just down the road from where our big billboard was displayed last week. Sir Rod's wife, Penny Lancaster, appears to be a fan of his new ink. Amazing celebration to end a great Australian-New Zealand tour, wrote Lancaster in a comment below the photo. They have the story about a search on for two overdue hunters in East Coast Forest, And this story in their world section, Suck My Tongue, Dalai Lama shocks with bizarre comment to young boy. Gotta go into this. The Dalai Lama has raised eyebrows after kissing a young Indian boy on the lips and asking him to suck his tongue. Footage of the bizarre interaction which occurred last month during an event for India's M3M Foundation has gone viral on social media. The leader of Tibetan Buddhism, Tenzin Gayatsu, was hosting students and members of the foundation at his temple in Dar es Salaam, India, where he lives in exile. In the video, the boy approaches the microphone and asks, Can I hug you? The 87-year-old says, "Okay, come, and invites him on stage. The Dalai Lama motions to his cheek and says, First here, and the boy gives him a hug and kiss. He holds the boy's arm and turns to him, saying, Then I think fine here also. As he points to his lips. I don't know if I want to go on with this. The spiritual leader then grabs the boy's chin and kisses him on the mouth as the audience laughs. And suck my tongue, the Dalai Lama tells the boy, sticking out his tongue. They press their foreheads together and the boy briefly pokes out his tongue before backing away as the Dalai Lama gives him a playful slap on the chest and laughs. On Spanish-language social media, Colombian journalist Vicky Davila wrote on Twitter, This kiss is scandalous. The Dalai Lama kisses a boy who approaches him on the mouth. The attendees applaud and laugh instead of condemning this aberration. The Herald tell us his office was forced to issue an apology, saying that sometimes his off-the-cuff remarks, which might be amusing in one cultural context, lose their humour in translation, when brought into another. That's the Herald. Now our MSM mainstream media normie news review for Tuesday morning goes to rnz.co.nz forward slash news. They have front and centre the tornado story, how tornadoes are formed and what unfolded. Oh, in Auckland, not in Nelson, but in Auckland analysis. Thunderstorm cells over Auckland were lined up in such a way that they fed into each other and kept each other going. They they let each other on, leaving damage in its wake. RNZ tell us such damaging winds could happen when thunderstorms were particularly vigorous. Med Service meteorologist Dan Corrigan said on Sunday night, the thunderstorm cells were lined up in such a way that they fed into each other and kept each other going. That's where they got that from. The weather feature that caused the damage may well have been a small tornado, but Met Service was uncertain because it had not seen any photos or video that showed a funnel cloud reaching the ground. You can have strong downdrafts out of thunderstorms that produce damaging wind gusts. The risk of damaging winds was the same, regardless of whether they came from a small tornado or from gusts. And we're told between 8.30 and 9.30pm, the strongest gusts recorded in the Auckland area were in exposed locations 96km an hour at the Tiritiri Matangi Lighthouse and 87 kilometres per hour at Parawa. Well, that's an average day in Welly, you know, when the northwest is blowing a gale. And this is interesting. NIWA meteorologist Dr Richard Turner has said the typical number of tornadoes observed in New Zealand was roughly about 7 to 10 a year. Some years had more, maybe as many as 20 or 30, but some of those would not have been observed. Correct. OK, so... What's uh, Dr. Richard Turner saying? Uh, the data from Niwa only goes back to 10 years. Have we heard that somewhere before? And Aucklanders are warned of more potential tornadoes as unsettled weather continues. I'm still looking for the connection to climate change. I'm looking, I'm looking. I'm, yeah, n- 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 no. No, 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 no. OK, I'm surprised. I'm I'm going, um, no. Oh, uh, there's a comment from Christopher Luxon. He was out on the streets of his electorate to look at the damage from Sunday night's tornado. The botany MP said many people he'd spoken to felt they had had a lucky escape. Well, what's your policy on tornadoes, Christopher? Come on. And RNZ have this story. BBC objects to government-funded Twitter label. Ooh. The BBC is objecting to a new label describing it as government-funded media on its main Twitter account. The corporation has contacted the social media giant over the designation on the at BBC account to resolve the issue as soon as possible. Oh, they don't like that. The BBC is and has always been independent. (laughs) We are funded by the British public through the licence fee. And yeah, how many people are wanting to cancel that? Uh, That's what they said anyway, they're funded through the licence fee. Elon Musk said he believed the BBC was one of the least biased outlets. When BBC News highlighted to the Twitter boss that the corporation is licence fee funded, Musk responded in an email asking, is the Twitter label accurate? He also appeared to suggest he was considering providing a label that would link to exact funding sources. It was not clear whether this would apply to other media outlets. And in their New Zealand health section, students object to uni's liquor license. They want information. A student group is pushing back against the University of Otago's bid to renew its liquor license, criticizing it as lacking important information. What is that important information? Students for Sensible Drug Policy Dunedin, SSDP. Stand back. I'm from the SSDP. Is also calling for medicine to treat opioid overdoses to be available on site and for staff to be trained in its use, a condition the university says should not be required. Yeah. The group's concerns are set to be heard in a district licensing committee meeting on Thursday. This follows the SSDP's recent objection to 11 bar and clubs on license renewal, alongside objections from police. Tefatu Order Health New Zealand and a city licensing inspector. The future of the Octagon venue popular with students is likely to be decided by the end of the month. Another concern was the university plan reported by the Otago Daily Times in July last year, and that is to sell alcohol from noon at the University Union Food Court, subject to approval. And someone's made this comment increasing access to alcohol for a vulnerable demographic and a place of study seems problematic well given what the universities are turning out maybe maybe uh, the alcohol might uh, might help and immediate access to naloxone which reverses effects of an opioid overdose is this a problem are they having a problem with that would save lives and should be part of first aid supplies the submission said yeah that can sit right uh, up on the wall next to the DfiB which I'm sure is getting a workout. More than it ever has, possibly. Now, our tour around of the MSM Normie news sites uh, arrives at One News, their lead story. Police searching for two missing hunters on East Coast. A search and rescue team as well as the Eagle helicopter searched the area but couldn't find the hunters. Serious concern over Brendan McCullum YouTube gambling ads... Oh, yeah. The Problem Gambling Foundation says they have serious concerns about an aggressive online marketing campaign from an offshore gambling company, which features cricketer Brendan McCullum. The ad, which plays on YouTube, features the former Black Cap and current England coach sitting in a Ferrari, calling on viewers to sign up for 22bet. Bet to play, bet to win, he says in the ad. 22bet is an offshore betting website based out of Cyprus. Currently, it's illegal for overseas bookmakers to advertise in New Zealand. What are they saying? The ads have been played incessantly, with Kiwis taking to social media to complain about the annoying and repetitive advertisements. Are they complaining because they're annoying and repetitive or because they're about gambling? I don't know. It's now caught the attention of the Problem Gambling Foundation, the PGF, which filed a complaint to the Department of Internal Affairs. Speaking to One News, PGF spokesperson Andre Froude said she has serious concerns about the advertising. She called it the most aggressive marketing I've ever seen. And she said people go onto this betting platform and they're not actually covered by New Zealand law. It's based in Cyprus, so they're not actually protected. People may not be aware of that, so if, for example, something went wrong and they couldn't get their money out... They wouldn't be protected. Oh, I see. That's what they mean by protected. Not protected from the evils of gambling, but if, what, if something went wrong with the transaction? Anyway. Christchurch supermarket robbed by potentially armed man, potentially. Woman's refuge, now called Aviva, sees more demand after 50 years. Formerly known as Christchurch Women's Refuge, the organization Aviva is marking 50 years of supporting Cantabrians to live violence free. And I looked up Aviva. It is a female first name. It is a modern Hebrew name meaning spring-like, dewy or fresh. Its masculine version is Aviv, with Aviva also being one of its possible diminutives. The diminutives of Aviva are Avika and Viva. The normie news now goes to stuff.co.nz. Unbelievable tornado tears through Tasman region, leaving path of destruction. And they've got a picture here of people putting tarps on a roof that's obviously been sucked off. FIFA Women's World Cup chant to be unveiled as tickets go back on sale. A fan chant unique to the tournament will be premiered as organisers mark the 100 days to go milestone at an event at Eden Park on Tuesday. And Tazanui, a fun, football-loving penguin, has been unveiled as the official mascot for the 2023 FIFA Women's World Cup. Remember that name, Tazanui, the fun, football-loving penguin. This is impressive. A total of 650,000 tickets have been sold across the 64 matches to be played in New Zealand and Australia, with almost 150,000 sold for the 29 to be played in Auckland, Hamilton, Wellington and Dunedin. And the football ferns will play Norway at Eden Park in Auckland in the first match of the World Cup on July 20th. Stuff have the Dalai Lama asking the child to suck his tongue story. And they point out that the Dalai Lama has issued an apology for that. In their farming section, when will the egg shortage finally end? Supermarkets say egg supplies are improving. But farmers warn shortages could drag on. In their entertainment section, Scream 6 becomes highest grossing of the horror franchise. In their local government section, Auckland Transport's new boss wants to lift bus train trips by 20%. Dean Kimpton says Auckland Transport is jaded, but is taking up the challenge to listen better in 2023. We hear you, and we finish up our tour of the mainstream media Normie news sites in New Zealand with a visit to Newshub. And their lead story in their environment section UK proposes to ban wet wipes should New Zealand do the same. A proposal to ban wet wipes could save the UK government almost 200 million New Zealand dollars a year in sewer cleanup costs. Yeah, there's that. In Australasia, new flushable standards have been brought in to help customers know which products break down in water, but Watercare says people should still avoid putting wipes down the tubes. The items have been clogging up sewers for years and the UK government says they've had enough. Now we're just going to complete it and ban plastic wet wipes for good, UK MP Environment Secretary Therese Coffey said. Wet wipes, when flushed, are notorious for clogging up and overwhelming pipes from clumping together with cooking oils to form, oh, I love this word, fatbergs. Then they urge us to watch Chris Hipkins' Chippy Hey Chippy. Interviewed by The Hui on Three Waters and most important issues impacting Maori. There's the tornado stories. Inflation causes sharp spike in price of Easter eggs. No Easter egg shortage have you noticed. The first line of the story is it's Easter which means it's time to overindulge in chocolate. Really? Is that what Easter's all about, News Hub? Overindulging in chocolate? Boy, they they like to confess, don't they? But like most things, the price of Easter eggs has jumped significantly this year, and this has left a bitter taste. Oh, not a cliché line. A bitter taste in some consumers' mouths. Economist Brad Olson, who was probably wondering why he put all that time into being educated as an economist to have questions like this, asked of him. He said it's no surprise that chocolate prices are broadly mirroring the general increase in food costs. My eyes are glazing over. Let's get out of there. And in their fuel section, pain at the pump, expert warns up to 40 cent increase in petrol prices by July. The Automobile Association, AA, is warning petrol prices could increase by that much. It comes after fuel prices hit record highs in 2022, with the government slashing fuel taxes and public transport fares in March last year to respond to soaring prices. But an AA spokesperson said with fuel taxes being reintroduced and the international price of oil barrels increasing, Kiwis can expect to pay more soon. Oh, well, that's just great, isn't it? Thank you for that. And they're reporting investigation into Green MP to see if there's been more backstabbing behaviour. Who the crybaby text was destined for? This is is like being a play centre. Um, a Green MP Elizabeth Kitty-Kitty is being investigated by her party for slagging off her own colleague Chloe Swarbrick, calling her a cry baby. "We are disappointed. We will be fully investigating," said co-leader Marima Davidson. While Swarbrick was debating her alcohol bill in the House on Wednesday night, her kakariki comrade Dr Kitty-Kitty hit the group chat bemoaning the fact Swarbrick was getting attention during the party's list selection process. Dr. Ketiketi seemingly accidentally sent a green eyed text to the wrong group of MPs and staffers. Sucks that her bill goes through during list ranking. Please, universe, pick my bill tomorrow. Then another text. Oh my God, what a crybaby. On the face of it, the message looked to be mean, Davidson said. We are taking this very seriously. And that's our look around the. <laughs> oh dear. That's our look around she called me a crybaby. That's our look around the mainstream media, normie news for this morning, Tuesday, April eleventh on Reality Check Radio.
1: What I want to achieve with RCR is conversation.
0: with that information, can make of it what they will. That is the mission. It's a good mission.
4: Rational discussion, common sense, open debate, RCR. Reality Check Radio with Paul Brennan.
0: That's right. It's me, Paul Brennan, on Reality Check Radio Tuesday morning. Peter McCullough, Dr. Peter McCullough, beaming in from Texas, USA, Uh, inside the next half hour or so. Remember, we're trialing out our text system. It's our sort of like version 1.0, and it's easy to use, obviously. Texting's not difficult. But I might have hashed it up a bit in in initially describing how to use this at the start of the show um, some minutes ago. So here we go. I'm going to have another go at explaining it. And all you have to do is text RCR with your message, to 4040. Text RCR with your message to 4040. I'll say that again. Text RCR with your message to 4040. And let's see if it works. Let's see if it works. All right. Time for our first guest. He is Phil Shaw from Operation People. And just about Phil Shaw, over his working life, he served in the military, the healthcare science sector, and in Countering Human Trafficking. Uh, He has military experience in counter-terrorist operations, special operations forces, New Zealand special air services. He's um, been involved in intelligence systems and analysis, health science. He's got a Bachelor of Medical Laboratory Science and practiced in chemical pathology. And he is a very well-qualified Man, He's also part of Operation People with Chantel Baker, and you may remember not too long ago we had uh, quite a deep dive, as I've called it, into his work looking into the disinformation project, the people involved in it, how it kind of works, um, how it's been funded, etc. Anyway, I've asked Phil to come on the program this morning as an intel and information gatherer and analyst to get His view of where this culture war, I think we can call it a culture war, is heading with the two sides sort of um, facing off against each other. Uh, You've got the story that the Herald have done, Big Read, they call it, uh, The Life and Alternate Realities of Chantel Baker by senior writer David Fisher. Are we heading to a point where this could get serious and become a kind of national security threat phil welcome to reality check radio again nice to have you
1: yeah hi paul um yeah thanks for having me on again
0: okay so i thought it would be good just to have a quick chat because it seems to me and others i'm sure that this is the latest example this and i think i i, I would call it a hit piece on Chantel baker who of course is one of the lineup one of the team here at uh, Reality Check Radio, as well as as Operation People, um, and you're involved in that, of course, uh, to sort of find out at what point we're at with this, what I guess people would term a culture war, but maybe up to now it's flipped into something a little more serious, and that is possibly to a level of uh, a threat to national security. And and we'll uh, kind of explain that as we go. So we've got the disinformation project, We've got the media going hard at it. We've got uh, certain members out there of society. Um, I'm thinking of the Shanil Nile and uh, the activists who poured the tomato juice over Posey Parker. And, of course, our uh, good uh, friend, the Sri Lankan doctor, Sanjana Hatatua from um, the Disinformation Project, who are clearly agitating and, and saying quite inflammatory things. The word genocidal was used the other day by Dr. Hutter Um, He was the uh, person who made a comment uh, in media just uh, within the week or so relating to the aftermath of what happened at Albert Park on March 25th, that Saturday morning, that uh, levels of hate, and he conflated it with uh, you know, far right extremist groups kind of joining up with people who might have been more on the anti-vax crowd. I hate using that term, but let's uh, let's use it. Um, that the hate level towards the trans community had, had hit a genocidal level. Now that's a serious word. Yet yeah, the police who weren't protecting, it seems, the uh, people at that. Um, Event in Albert Park. We're talking about the Let Women Speak uh, people mainly, obviously. And they've come out now and said, look, if anyone's threatening the trans community, call us and we'll be there. We'll turn up. They let the Colombian person um, out of the country, apparently. Arrest warrant there now, but uh, how good is that when they're not even in the country? Mm. Uh, And you've got um, the uh, SIS and the head of the SIS, Kitteridge, saying not too long ago in developing some sort of pamphlet, some sort of guideline for citizens who may be concerned that their neighbour is going off the rails to contact them. It seems to me now we're getting to a level where there is such loose talk out there. I mean, genocidal is a serious word. We've got institutions of state, including, you know, um, the Disinformation Project, which seems to be working um, kind of, in lockstep or fall or or is sympathetic to the government and the the power side of it, all coming together to, hmm, how would you say, if you're an intelligence gathering person of which you have been in your previous sort of uh, life, putting all those ingredients together do we have a forming, what, what we could, what the Americans would always probably say as a national security issue, weaponization of institutions, academics and activists um, saying very inflated and alarming rhetoric, using the genocidal term mm-hmm. uh, again. Um, it's a long winded way of me getting to you to ask, have we got a problem? Is this a, is this a bigger problem than just he said, she said?
1: Yeah, yeah, I think it's um, you, you know, it's definitely sort of a a sort of cultural war. Um, now, if, if we go back to Jacinda Ardern's UN speech, we can see that she uh, outlined that cultural war in that speech, where she, um, and, and I'll I'll do a video on this speech coming up soon. Um, but she essentially equates um, what they class as disinformation uh, to the likes of nuclear war um, and and the weapons of, of sort of what they called the old form of war. Um, and so you've got so, sort of this rhetoric coming right from central government um, and then you've got central government setting up um, or requesting Te uh, Putahambatatini to set up the disinformation project. And that project... It essentially sets the narrative. And so that's where you've got, say, Sanjana Hatutua, who is setting a narrative um, and, and then using that narrative on mainstream media uh, to create spin. Now, now, they were funded by the government. They've since in sort of a mid-2022, they went um, private. So they stepped out of uh, Auckland University, where it's quite likely that they sort of severed that relationship because Auckland University is actually under the Official Information Act. Um, their documents show that they're very aware that their documents can be potentially uh, retrieved by the Official Information Act. Um, but they're, they're essentially using taxpayer money to actually spin quite a significant narrative. And it's a, it's a very divisive narrative, and I think that's where... Uh, we, we're we really starting to get a problem because what, what we're seeing is across um, academia, across some of these projects, is they're really starting to vilify a huge portion of New Zealand society. And it is, it is drawn along ideological lines. And then what's really concerning is that, a lot of public service agencies like the New Zealand Police are actually and NZSIS are actually picking this narrative up and they're actually, I guess, they're not actually enforcing the law um, and under sort of equal justice under the law terms. They're, they're actually taking sides. And we can see that with the likes of the New Zealand Police the New, New Zealand police are, are driving around in cars with rainbow stripes on them. So they've taken sort of a side already and they're showing their sort of solidarity with with one side of the argument. Now, the other way we can look at it is through their actions, say, at that Posey Parker event where we did see a, a, a sort of failure to respond in a timely manner and, and, and also failure to keep those protesters separated from the actual event and so i i do think we are actually getting to quite a bit of a problem where the narrative is spinning a narrative of division and hate and and it's it's inflating an issue and then what we're doing is is we're seeing uh, public service agencies actually taking a side on that, which I think is is very dangerous because they should be there to represent all sections of the community in a non biased um, fashion.
0: And then you've got um, a lot of talk in the media and in this piece uh, on Chantelle, alluding to you know sort of dark money from overseas. Uh, and this is not new; it's it's been going on a bit. this sort of uh, attempt to link dark money, far right money, the relentless use of the term "far right," by the way, when really there is no classification or description of of what that means, and also you know, intimating uh, Russian connections as well. What you would expect if you wanted to create a narrative like that, but at the same time, you've got the people that um, I mentioned at the start of this the three people that I mentioned, um, they're all from outside the country. They're not from New Zealand. And, okay, uh, it's great that people can come and live here and, you know, they can thank us all they like for creating a a stable country, a good platform from um, which they can operate. But, actually, if there's any outside influence causing problems, it's them.
1: I think you're right there. And I think also what we've seen is um, the ideology that they're actually sort of um that's driving a lot of this is actually also an I- an ideology from outside new zealand as well now, now it has come through academic circles and i guess within um academia you do have sort of borrowing of ideas right across sort of the world um you know you publish your information or your research in a journal article and then other um institutions will or, or, and and researchers will pick up those articles and and use that information that you've published um, so there is quite a lot of sharing um, however like this this ideology is coming from out of, out of America um, it is it is sort of a United States and American sort of ideology that has has really been um, incubated there and I guess it's been picked up by by um, you know some of these these figures that we we see sort of in the disinformation project, and even even wider um, across right across academia. So so there's definitely foreign influence there. And in terms of um, you know some of the claims in that article about it, it almost insinuates that operation people were sort of subject to some sort of disinformation operation. From the Russians or the Chinese, and that is absolutely false. You know, we 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 work independently as a team, and we research what we think is necessary um, to to help the public understand what is going on, and we try and provide wherever we can references and sources to all our uh, material. So, and I've said before, you know, you decide. Don't trust us. We we uh, trust that they are smart enough and knowledgeable enough to be able to decide and be able to take our references and, and actually fact check us themselves. And we're absolutely happy for them to do that. So yeah, there, there's some, there's some allegations there, which, you know, they, they are false. So.
0: well Well, that means they're lies actually to insinuate that. Do you think they actually believe that?
1: It's hard to say. Like it's, it's hard for me to um, attribute sort of any intention to what they are trying to do, or, or why it is. Um, it seems there's some sort of a, a witch hunt going on. Um, I don't know what it takes in New Zealand to start up a media company in New Zealand and actually be, you know, not be not be subject to a witch hunt by other um, media that's already operating i don't know why they spend so much time sort of um trying to suggest that we are some sort of you know russian or kremlin shill and that's when it's absolutely false and None of us have any contact with any Russians, and and um, you know we're we're doing our best to do our, to do research and actually provide uh, the evidence of our research so that people can can fact check us themselves. And and I think for me, uh, coming from sort of um, working in anti human trafficking work, doing some intelligence there, um, when you're investigating people and you're you're potentially your work is potentially going to be putting them away and uh, for a very long time then you want to make sure that you have the the facts straight um, the evidence and you want to make sure that you provide all the sources for the, that evidence so that when it goes through court the court can really get to the basis of, of what's actually going on and and that's sort of what we apply to our journalism as well we we are trying to provide as, as best we can all the sources uh, to the information so that people can check it out themselves.
0: Well, the picture that is built, um, if you really believed it, people could think this is a very sinister thing that's happening. And, you know, some people um, can be very serious in their response and reactions to, to forming those views or b- believing them. And, and that can logically extend to then... Um, whoever is being, and in this case Chantel and others in the situation, being positioned like this by the media to um, the mass audience, creates a potential physical threat, doesn't it, to someone? And, and I mean, that's very serious, is it not?
1: Yeah, yeah I think when you, when you do have these accusations sort of levelled against you, then I think, yeah, there's there's always potential for a, a threat. And, you know, we, when you say the, the sort of police have um, reached out to the, the trans community and said, if anyone threatens us, um, then, re- then, you know, please report it to us so we can deal with it. And actually, I would agree with that. But I would say they should be Same. reaching out both to both sides and saying that and saying, hey, if anyone receives a threat anywhere because... Obviously, this dialogue and discussion is getting relatively heated. They should be extending that uh, service out to both sides and to everyone and saying, hey, you know, because we did see at that event, the violence came from the trans community themselves. And, and, you know, hey, it's not going to be all of the trans community, but it was people that were representing them there on that day. And so... Yeah, I think, you know, the, the police should definitely be impartial and they should be uh, extending those services and that offer out to to both sides rather than taking a side on, on these issues. But it does seem that they are continually sort of taking a side on a lot of these issues, um, which, is, which is probably actually leading to a lot of um, the distrust we see. In the government, and also leading to, I guess if if we look at the latest reporting on uh, trust in media, that's also decreasing as well. So, I think a lot of these issues are actually all um, related. It is getting to quite a, a serious, a serious place where um, it can can get quite dangerous.
0: Okay, so here's the big question I've been leading up to. Given your background. And, um, uh, you know, you don't have to go into the detail of, uh, you have sort of alluded to the areas that you might have uh, gathered info in and uh, your background in special forces and understanding threats, security threats. With all this mixed together, and I know that some of them include, you know, government agencies, institutions, plus the media. If you are gathering intel on the security of a nation, and maybe you can answer this, maybe you can't, but this is the big question for me. And you're building a picture. How would you interpret all this information? And if you were to make a report back to superiors, what would it be?
1: Well, I guess I, I would sort of go along the lines of, in, in, in my assessment, what I'm what I'm seeing is um, just internally. It's it's not necessarily from external influence. Look, so everyone's yeah. sort of picking up ideas from all over the place because we are connected globally um, via social media, via all types of different sort of mainstream channels. Um, we can get information. Uh, at the tip of our fingers right now. And, and that's, that's occurring sort of on, on both sides of the culture war, if you like. Um, and so I, what, what I would say is internally within uh, a lot of Western nations at the moment, there is getting to a point where there's, there's two main sort of um, ideologies and, and I would class it as there's sort of this collectivist um, critical theory type ideology. And, and, opposing that there's sort of a libertarian because that that libertarian group is is actually made up of people that you would consider to be sort of a bit left wing bit right wing and center there's people in that group of all different religions there's people in that group that would uh, that would lean towards the side of sort of um, social redistribution schemes and things like that and and uh, social security nets, and there's people that would lean more to the sort of business-oriented side and and uh, economically conservative, uh, and and so that that libertarian group is made up with just a lot of people. Generally, what they are united around is is ideas around um, smaller government, less control, and uh, more freedom um, for the citizens. But what we're seeing within those those two major groups, so you've got that libertarian group and the uh, more collective group, we are seeing some sort of destabilisation. there's There's now getting to the point where, for instance, in the Posey Parker event, you have two groups that are sort of uh, jostling for the same rights. In that case, they're jostling over how do you define what a woman is. Is a woman defined as an adult human female, a, a biological construct, or is it um, not necessarily biological? Is it more of a social construct where it's, uh, where the, the person themselves gets to decide whether they're a male or a female or a, or a man or a woman? And, and that has implications on whether biological males are allowed in female spaces or not. So that's one instance where you, you can see these two groups that disagree on a fundamental way of defining reality and it's, it's destabilising our, our entire sort of social cohesion. It's, it's, we're becoming destabilised um, as a nation. We're, we're lacking those central values and identities that bind us together uh, as as these two groups are sort of jostling for those positions. Now, what I guess would be the the threat in that assessment is that as we are becoming destabilised, as we also then become vulnerable for exploitation from, um, you know, foreign actors, and that, that could be the, the likes of Russia or China or something like that could take advantage of that situation because we're, you know we've we've weakened ourselves internally, and I think uh, we potentially see that happening, say in the United States at the moment. Uh, it seems a, a lot of countries around the world are uh, seeing that sort of weakness um, because of that destabilisation, and they're taking advantage of it.
0: Um, Fascinating to talk about this. Thank you, Phil, for coming in and, and giving your thoughts, uh, given what you have been involved with in the past and involved with now. And um, I guess we'll see um, how this sort of thing uh, plays out. But do you think it's um, part of a continuum, this piece in the weekend, because this is why we're talking? Or do you think this, this whole thing, like I feel, is starting to sort of peak to a level where, it's kind of no longer a joke.
1: Yeah, I, I think it is sort of getting to that level. But I, I think the other thing as well is, you know, I trust Kiwis to be rational and, and reasonable. And I think, hey, you know, you guys um, have a look at this stuff. Um, keep your your eyes and ears open and and have a look to see which side appears to be actually fitting with the reality that you see? I, I'm quite sceptical on on a lot of things. I I work in probabilities and I rate things in, in probabilities. I I never really work in absolutes, which is can mm. be a bit of a pain. But I I generally sort of rank order things for um, the likelihood, uh, and and that's sort of a yeah. scientific way of thinking. Um, and, and I think like you know we we need to be doing that as 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 kiwis we need to be saying you know like what are these guys up to um thinking about what they're trying to achieve and whether whether their uh claims actually actually match the reality that we see i think with the amount of information that's circulating now and sort of the amount of activism as well um people need to really um be aware of of their sources but vet their sources by checking it uh, with what they actually see in reality um, if if that makes sense so so verifying sources by by sort of cross checking other sources um, using uh, things like live streams that are a lot harder to cut and edit hmm. and and verifying news sources that way that type of thing
0: but um, just to end here's the thing though the coercive capability of the state is on the side of one particular side, and we can't ignore that
1: yeah I, I think um that is the case um it does seem that a lot of the public service agencies are sort of behind one side of this and, and i think this is where it is really important for democracy to play out uh, for people to vote and really you know part of what we're trying to do is expose this so that people can see a little bit more behind the curtain so to speak and yeah I think it's really going to play out in, in democracy with voting. I, I don't see violence as an option I think that this uh, you know it, it's not a good place to be and so we, we need to actually have these discussions we need to be democratic and it, and it needs to be handled at, at the vote
0: phil shaw operation people thanks for being with us
1: awesome thanks very much
4: rational discussion common sense open debate rcr reality check radio with paul brennan This is
0: Reality Check Radio. I'm Paul Brennan. Very shortly, probably the best known cardiologist in the world on the planet right now, Dr. Peter A. McCullough. And many of you will know about Dr. McCullough. If you don't know about Dr. McCullough, then I think you'll be really impressed with his incredible recall of knowledge around the whole COVID vaccine harm issue. He's been Across this really since day one, and it's made him I don't want to say the word star, but he's kind of a star. Uh, He's definitely the go to for a a huge number of podcasters, Joe Rogan uh, being at the top of that. Uh, He's been on all the uh, media sites that look into this issue globally. So, uh, I'm going to be really interested to talk with Dr. McCullough. Uh, in a few minutes from now let's just quickly before we do that have a look at some of the email feedback that we've had come in this from mary good morning paul great to hear your conversation with steve kirsch i could wax lyrical with superlatives about the work the team at reality check radio are doing along with the presenters of voices for freedom but i don't need to as you are being made aware every day just how much you and your work is valued oh thanks for that Uh, You're all doing what real professional journalists with inquiring minds and moral compasses are required to do. And you've made a few suggestions uh, regarding people that we can talk to on Reality Check Radio. Thank you so much, Mary. What a great email. This from Imogen. Hi, Paul. I'm currently listening to your chat with Dr. Gary Fetke. And I think his views around plant-based vegan are mostly debatable. And he's generalizing so much of what he's saying And I feel it would be good to have a whole foods plant-based nutritionist on your show to discuss the other side. I agree that processed foods, including plant-based, are killing us. But saying that eating animals is healthier is not entirely true. And you go on to point out a few issues. And you've suggested uh, some names of people we could talk to regarding that. Noted, Imogen. Thanks for your email. This from Angela, good morning, Paul. What an absolute joy hearing Lindsay Perrigo again. I felt a wave of patriotism for the first time in years, loving the show by the way. I reach for my phone and turn on first thing every day. Angela. thanks for that Angela Kingsley has emailed this re Lindsay George Orwell would be proud. I'll pass that on to Lindsay, and this from Mark Debbie and Family. Hi, Paul. You just did a bit on the Euthanasia bill though very much agree in principle, wife and I voted against, though we're seeing bigger methods of population control and play primarily aimed at reducing births than topping oldies. First point, med industry is corrupt. If we have a terminal disease, terrible pain, that patient is an absolute cash cow, needing lifelong treatments and expensive drugs on a daily basis. You say you have a close-to-home example. And you give me details on that, but we won't share them. Waiting lists have us not just dying to live, but dying to die. Cheers, guys, and many thanks, Mark, Debbie, and the family. If you want to email inbox at realitycheck.radio, you can go to realitycheck.radio website and to the contact page and email us that way. And now you can text us, and that's not hard. I'll tell you what you have to do. All right, you ready? Here come, the, here come the deets, as they say. All you have to do is text RCR with your message to 4040. Text RCR with your message to 4040. From his website, Dr. Peter A. McCullough, MD, MPH, Master of Public Health, brings truth to the world and fights battles against censorship and reprisal. He's an internist, cardiologist, epidemiologist, and the chief scientific officer of the wellness company, Since the outset of the pandemic, Dr. McCullough has dozens of peer-reviewed publications on the infection and has commented extensively on the medical response to the COVID-19 crisis. And so that goes on. And from Wikipedia, the obligatory, McCullough has promoted misinformation about COVID-19, its treatments, and mRNA vaccines. Dr. Peter McCullough joins us on Reality Check Radio from the United States. Dr. McCullough, welcome to our program.
6: Well, thanks for having me. I I I, I knew you were going to throw in Wikipedia. Boy, I tell you what, that's a frustration for any public figure. You know, I can't edit my Wikipedia. I can't correct it. It's done by anonymous writers uh, who in many times have an agenda that's nefarious. Unfortunately, Wikipedia is uh, wide open defamation. But thank you so much for having me on the program.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask you how you, you think the Wikipedia editors actually came to that conclusion. What do they just make it up?
6: They're probably influenced. They probably have sponsors that can come to them and say, "Listen, uh, you know, why don't you try to shape uh, shape people's views of public figures?" Uh, just like we've learned that uh, various government operatives, the FBI, CDC, were in Twitter content modulating Twitter to advance a false narrative in the COVID community core program in the United States in 2021, $13 billion flowed out to media to influence people's thoughts regarding the vaccines, relentlessly promoting them, and then suppressing any information on early treatment, natural immunity, or vaccine safety.
0: Hmm. People here in New Zealand have been lining up for the Pfizer bivalent shot. That began rollout at the beginning of the week, just gone. We had our Prime Minister, Minister of Health, taking the shots on TV news. I had a Asim Malhotra from the UK on this program about a few days before that saying, don't do it. Message to New Zealand, don't do it. But they did line up and they did do it. I wonder in April 2023, after all this time, how much of the public do you think is still buying this? Is there increasing hesitancy? And what about vaccine regret?
6: It's true. In the United States, there's tremendous vaccine hesitancy. The rate of anybody taking a bivalent booster is only 16 percent. And sadly, probably those are taking it against their will. The rate of nursing home workers. Now, that was the only employment group where the vaccines could have made a difference uh, if they theoretically worked. The rate of nursing home workers taking a vaccine 10 percent. Now, the bivalent boosters are coded against BA4, BA5. Omicron subvariants. Those subvariants now are effectively extinct. So it's too late to roll them out in New Zealand. The current predominant strain in the United States is XBB1.5, and it's probably the same in New Zealand. So the vaccines are a total waste of time. They have no theoretical benefit, and only the opportunity for more safety hazards, including cardiovascular, neurologic uh uh, blood clots and uh, immunologic injury, and the rates of death with vaccine continue to to mount.
0: So, why would you do it?
6: <laughs> you know, again, no one in their right mind would do it. I think the only people doing it are those forced to do it through employment or school, uh, other government mandates. I don't think anybody is taking these, uh, you know, out of their own volition. And those who take the vaccine now are just bracing themselves. To see if they're going to suffer heart damage or a blood clot or some complication, it's really just a terrible experience, I think, for most.
0: I want to get on shortly to: Are there therapeutics or mitigation medicines that can be taken to offset the harmful effects of spike proteins? First, though, the whole thing about science—follow the science. Anthony Fauci said he was the science, if I remember rightly. Um, what are some of? I've heard you quoting many studies. Uh, many data sets over this time, um, you know, basically proving something is up here. Can you share a few of those with us that really make an impact?
6: Sure. You you know, I've given more media appearances in terms of TV shows, uh, you know, live programs, radio clips, uh, Senate testimony, um, both House and State Senate testimony, than any public figure. So if you take Anthony Fauci, Rochelle Lewinsky, Ashish Jha, Robert Califf, uh, Murphy, Surgeon General, Biden, Harris, Trump, Pence, put them all together. I've given more. I've actually given more analyses and more inferences. And you can't find a highlight reel where I'm wrong on a topic or where I flip-flop back and forth on a topic. The reason why I've prevailed is because I consistently cite the literature. Remember, in medicine, there's no such thing as information or misinformation. It doesn't exist. There's simply scientific data and two or more interpretive views. We can't interpret the data unless we can cite the data. And if you notice, uh, those who are pushing the false narrative, they never cite information. Never. They simply are are, are out there pushing a narrative. The, the, The most common narrative is safe and effective. They say the vaccines are safe and effective. Well, that actually has to be proven. They have to cite the data if they think it's safe and effective. What are the,
0: what are some of the slam dunk um, pieces of data information that that really you know for someone who's listening now, sort of uncertain, would if they looked into it, would, would would convince them?
6: Right, I think the slam dunk information is heart damage. So the FDA came out in June of 2021 and says the vaccines cause heart damage. The FDA said this. Okay. Uh, since that time, we over 200 peer-reviewed publications on myocarditis or heart inflammation caused by the vaccines. Fatal cases reported in the Wingard Journal of Medicine* by Verma from Washington University in St. Louis, Choi from Korea, uh, Gill from Connecticut, Patone from the UK. Proven fatal cases at autopsy. Okay, there's no there's no question the patients died. Proven fatal cases. Um, The the FDA has published a a paper by Wu and colleagues on blood clots, thousands of blood clots, describing blood clots that go from the ankle to the hip in their reports to the FDA. 11% are fatal, Mm -hmm. are fatal. I mean, these are the slam dunk papers. Uh, The World Council for Health Pharmacovigilance Report, June 11th, 2022. Conclusion pull the vaccines off the market, not safe for human use, record mortality being reported in every safety system, far beyond any acceptable level. The Pfizer dossier released under court order where they they, they their obligatory 90-day observation period from releasing their vaccine, they recorded 1,223 deaths with the Pfizer vaccine. On the same day people who take the shots or a few days afterwards. Uh, We now are record. United States, our CDC is acknowledging 17,000 deaths with the vaccine very shortly after taking it. This is record mortality, grossly underreported. These are huge numbers. Uh, 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 In the United States per year, all the vaccines combined, typically no more than 150 deaths. It can happen, allergic deaths, but not 17,000. I mean, these are stunning, uh, stunning statistics uh, and I think everybody should should really understand that the next shot could be fatal.
0: And I've heard that uh, vaccines in the past that have had even a small number of deaths associated with them, you know, in the lower hundreds or even below that, they're pulled, right? They've been pulled. Absolutely
6: pulled off the market. Sure. Rotavirus was pulled off the market. Fifteen cases of interception wasn't even fatal. The uh, swine flu was pulled after about 25 deaths, it rose to 53 deaths, uh, 550 cases of Guillaume Beret. We recently had the FDA pulled some eye drops off the market because of one freak death, one. So here we have uh, information uh, published, it's in the peer-reviewed literature, not just the, the safety systems, uh, a paper by Villa Zapata and colleagues, Mercer University in University of Utah in children, in the first year of the vaccine campaign, in children reported 56 deaths due to the vaccine, ages 5 to 17. And the, the accepted under-reporting factor from VARES uh, that the FDA has not challenged, this in their meeting minutes, is 30. So 30 times 56. We're talking about 1,600 children have died with the vaccine, same day they take it or a few days afterwards. 17,000 people overall. The CDC is verifying, multiply that times 30, it comes up to over 500,000 Americans have died. And you take New Zealand, you'll find proportional statistics. All over the world we're seeing this. Yet it's not pulled. It's almost as if the issue at hand is the public themselves has to wake up and realize this is fatal and they have to turn it down. The government is not going to be a caretaker over the people at this point in time. The vaccines are going to be out there. They're going to be pushed relentlessly. And the challenge is for people to understand that they are potentially fatal.
0: Cardiology is your wheelhouse, so to speak. And it seems that cardio um, adverse reactions have, have have they been disproportionate in the range of of reactions. And I, I think that's the same here. Can you take us through as you know, briefly as you can, but with some detail, what, why this is?
6: The, the range of, of cardiac syndromes includes progression of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, heart attacks, strokes, bypass surgery, stenting, uh, myocarditis or heart inflammation, and then cardiac arrhythmias, actually abnormal heart rhythms, even without heart damage. This has been proven in studies, uh, one from your of Iowa, for instance, um, well documented. The reason being is we now understand when someone takes a shot, the messenger RNA is circulating in the body for over a month, and the spike protein is circulatory in the body for over a month. The Two authors there are Castriuda for the RNA and um, Ogata for the spike protein. So as people exercise, and as the heart draws myocardial blood flow, it gets progressively loaded with vaccine. And now in a paper by Yonker and colleagues from Harvard published in Circulation, they found that those suffering with myocarditis, they had free circulating spike protein and it wasn't being appropriately uh, neutralized with the antibodies. Whereas people who are not having heart damage they had spike protein, but it was being neutralized by the antibody. So now this explains why some people develop heart damage and those who don't. It has to do with the library of antibodies that respond to the spike protein. Not everybody is the same. Two studies, one by LePesic, the other by again show the rate of heart damage in a prospective cohort design, 2.5%. That's actually a big number. That's a lot of people in New Zealand having heart damage.
0: We've all seen the video montages of the, the, the sports players. Does that go to your um, comment just before with, you know, the heightened physical activity, blood flow, et cetera? Is that why we're seeing them drop?
6: It's true. But remember, before COVID, the cardiology guidelines say we cannot let athletes with myocarditis exercise. We can't do it. So even before COVID, if they had myocarditis from parvovirus and another source, they are immediately taken out of sports. No athlete can exercise with myocarditis. So what we have is the athletes were forced to take it, and many of them are not feeling the myocarditis or not reporting it. They go out on the field, and then a smaller subfraction die. You're right. It's increased in frequency. Polycretus and myself have published in the European literature, before COVID, a stable period, age under 35, pro or semi-pro, mainly soccer and rugby, 29 cardiac arrests per year across all these leagues. That number now since the vaccines is 283, a tenfold rise in athlete sudden deaths.
0: Yeah, that's a number that, that is not coincidental, is it? I mean, it's so out there that uh, it's got big flashing arrows uh, pointing at it. What about, okay, so that's cardiac and kind of the short-term damage. People are talking about, you know, or wondering what happens in the longer term to uh, other uh, conditions, autoimmune conditions, cancer. I've had cancer before, and uh, I, I was wondering if I'd taken the shot, would that have potentially returned? It was a head and neck, HPV virus, cancer. Uh, have you got any thoughts of, of what we, were, we could see you know, in the years ahead?
6: At this point in time, you know, I'm following my patients clinically. I think most of the damage occurs in the first 30 days. progressively, the risks go down over time. I've seen some late blood clots about 18 months afterwards, but it's always because the patients have gotten COVID on top of taking the vaccines. Since the vaccines don't work, they get COVID anyway, and then they develop a blood clot or neurologic damage uh, or some other problem. So I think it's going to be time limited. Uh, I I think there's insufficient evidence that the vaccines cause cancer. So I want people to know that, you know, we're not ready to make that call yet. There is a paper uh, that's a modeling paper from University of Pittsburgh, Singh and colleagues, first author. They showed that the S2 segment of the spike protein, which people do get with the vaccines, it does interact with the uh, tumor surveillance uh, systems, P53 and BRCA, BRCA. And so by that mechanism, the vaccines theoretically by installing the spike protein could suppress these systems and promote solid organ cancers like kidney cancer, melanoma, and also promote uh, female breast and and reproductive cancers. That's just theoretical. The other uh, mechanism could be that fragments of the RNA, if it's ever broken down, fragments potentially could interact with uh, gene suppressing genes or, or cancer producing genes, oncogenic genes and drive cancer. None of that's proven. The only clinical report of increased cancer has been disclosed by Dr. Teresa Long in the, uh, when she testified in the Senate. Uh, the US military is clearly seeing an increase in the rates of cancer. And the big debate is, is it just now recognition, Come people coming out of lockdown and decreased access to healthcare, or is it driven by the vaccines? Those are the two uh, possibilities on the table. Cancer is up, we just need to figure out what's the cause.
0: I, I just picked up, you used the word installed before, talking about uh, the vaccine contents, I suppose. That sounds like software. I mean, I install software on my computer. I watch the little line go across. It gets loaded.
6: Is that kind of what you're describing? It's true. For the first time, you know, two-thirds of the world's population was injected with genetic code. And now we understand the genetic code is installed and it codes for the production of the Wuhan spike protein. This is the lethal part of the virus is produced for an uncontrolled duration of time. Uh, Rolfkin and colleagues from Stanford found that, that the genetic code is stuck in lymph nodes for at least two months, could be way longer. Uh, Bruce Patterson has shown that the spike protein is in the body with the respiratory infection. Forget the vaccines, the respiratory infection in severe cases, 15 months In vaccine patients, the full length spike protein at least 245 days. That's as long as they've looked. We've never seen a study where where the human body gets rid of these vaccines. I mean, this is very worrisome. They were designed, remember, messenger RNA is easily broken down by ribonucleases. The difference here is the messenger RNA had one of the parameters, one of the key ingredients, uracil, replaced by pseudouridine at every instance throughout the uh, code, about 3,400 base pairs. That made the RNA essentially indestructible. This uh, once it's injected, the hu- there's there's really no signs that the human body can get rid of it.
0: You mentioned the military. Uh, I'm just curious, uh, what sort of national security threat has that mandating of military personnel uh, produced? Because I'm thinking of fighter pilots and their F-16s, and you know, uh, boots on the ground doing hard yards across you know fields, crawling under things, and all of that. Is that a potential national security issue for the United States?
6: I think it could have been in the first 30 days for sure. The soldiers are sick. We know from the CDC vSafe data that people who take the shot, 7.7% get so sick they have to go to the hospital or urgent care. I mean, you can't have soldiers, 7.7% 7, 7. of soldiers being so sick they have to go to the sick bay when they're trying to fight a war. So I think acutely it was a threat. Uh, We worry about heart damage, neurologic damage, trying to fly elite uh, jets and operate tanks or other uh, equipment. So the the rates of uh, crashes uh, certainly could be a concern. But I I think the single greatest uh, reason why the vaccines weakened our military is number one, uh, most of the military had already had COVID. They didn't need a vaccine and they didn't want it. And yet they were forced to take it. And anytime you take a soldier and you force them to do something against their will, you break their will, and now they're mentally weaker than they oh, were Oh, that's before. interesting. Okay. Yeah. And then the second reason is some of the really strongest soldiers, they weren't going to take it. They walked out of the military. So we lost some of our best and strongest, and we made the ones that remained weaker. Now, it was my testimony and many others that put pressure on the House and the Senate and the White House to actually pull the mandates. The soldiers are no longer mandating to take it. It's elective, and none of them are taking it. None. Yeah. Yeah. So we hope that they can recover. Mass vaccination has been a debacle for military.
0: Okay, so the damage is done, let's say. Uh, is there anything out there? And I think your wellness company has uh, been into this. Is there, and there'll be pe- people listening now wondering, how can I get rid of this thing out of my body? How can I mitigate any adverse reactions? Is there a path out of of what I've well done to myself or had done to me, whatever, however you want to describe it?
6: Fortunately, there appears to be uh, an innovation discovered by the Japanese called natto N-A-T-T-O-K-I-N-A-S-E. It is the, it is the a product of fermentation when soy is broken down by a bacteria called um, Bacillus natto, that it generates this uh, natural enzyme. And now in, in a key preclinical study by Tanakawa and colleagues, it completely dissolves the spike protein. It's amazingly effective. Wow. Uh, is that and, a, like a
0: miracle breakthrough?
6: Yeah, I mean, it, and, and and it actually, uh, in other two other supportive studies, it was actually antagonized in the spike protein in infectious models. So the Japanese were thinking about using this to actually treat COVID, but it turns out it's ideally positioned to be a, a, a therapy, a detoxification therapy for patients with spike protein after the vaccine and or COVID. Now, there are no human studies yet, although the Japanese have been using it for a couple decades now in for atherosclerotic uh, carotid disease and elsewhere. So no, it's safe. There are some caveats. It does cause bleeding. It's for a form of a blood thinner and, um, and there can be soy allergies with it. So we know these caveats. But far and away, this is the most hopeful approach. If we had big pharma pick this up it could take five to 20 years to fully develop with randomized trials. A lot of people think we don't have time. Mm. So we are using it clinically. We're watching our patients carefully. Best in class product is offered by the wellness company, TWC.health. it's called Spike Support. Spike Support comes in a white and yellow bottle. It's far and the worldwide, the best seller. It's, uh, it's all US sourced, very high quality, has selenium, other kind of key, um, you know, key nutraceuticals in there black sativa seed, and some others. Uh, But we are having great success with this. And I I think this is the breakthrough. The Japanese have another product, which is a serine uh, uh, protease called ASPNJ. And it comes from a Japanese river worm. Uh, This will be a little further down the line. It may be an intravenous form of therapy. But right now, people are using uh, the spike protein support formula, natokinase, 2,000 fibrillinic units, 2,000 FUs twice a day. Uh, I think a key innovation, it's been my clinical observation, it takes about two months, and then people's symptoms start to improve, including the the neurologic symptoms and others.
0: Well, depending on what you believe, the the original virus comes from a bat, the cure comes from a river worm.
6: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, it turns out now under U.S. Uh, House and Senate investigations, it's now completely capitulated. Yeah, it's a U.S. product made in the Wuhan lab. That Ralph Barrick from the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill—he drew up the design, he did the research. It was funded by the U.S. Eco Health Alliance. Shuttles over the plans, and they make the virus in the Wuhan lab a chimeric. It's all published in 2015. It's out in the open. There's been a campaign to cover it up. There's been 12 academic papers trying to say it came out of the fish market. Our government orchestrated this uh, false narrative. And then finally, they capitulated. The National Security Administration, Department of Energy, FBI, former CDC director, they all came out and said, you know what? It came out of the lab. Meaning our governments were intentionally misleading us for years and trying to make us think it came out of uh, you know came out of the wild or a Chinese wet market.
0: Question is: Was it a leak, a, an accidental leak, failure of um, systems, or willful distribu- uh, di- distribution around the planet? What are people saying about that, or is it too early for that? It,
6: to me, it looks like a leak. It looks like an accidental leak. The yep. the, the, the the response was too uncoordinated, too you know too um, uh, it just was was too messy. Uh, It it doesn't look planned. I I think it was a leak and then a government cover-up.
0: All right. Um, I'd like to get a bit of personal stuff from you because I know you've been out there fighting the fight. You've taken incomings, arrows, every kind of, I don't know, uh, attack. Wikipedia, that's just the start. You've had it all. And you've, like many doctors and, and medical professionals, you know, your medical um, professional reputation, I'm sure, is important. Many have decided to preserve that by going a particular way. You haven't. You've been right out there. What's What's that been like for you?
6: And from the very beginning, I, I honestly felt that as this rolled in, we had a death very early on in my wife's side of the family. It really influenced us greatly. I said I have to do everything to help each and every person. I had to save as many people as I could in my practice family, friends, church, Bible study. And then ultimately, became a, a, I became a world figure. I tried to help as many people in the world as I could. I took an oath uh, to, above all, do no harm. And number two, help as, as many people as I could. And that's exactly what I've done. I've used as much clinical skills, scholarship, compassion as I possibly can. But it means being truthful. And we yeah. have to be truthful. Uh, No doctor can feel good about going along with these vaccines and seeing people, you know, develop heart damage, blood clots, stroke, being hospitalized. I mean, this is all happening. Our U.S. government and the New Zealand government says it happens. And for doctors to go along with this, uh, they must feel really bad at night when they go to bed.
0: Yeah, you wonder how they can sleep straight, some of them. What does this say in your mind about, and I like to call it now, and I've heard this description, the medical industrial complex sort of like the military industrial complex it's i guess it's hierarchy definite it seems conflicts of interest you you hear the revolving door mentioned all the time and i guess ultimately the loss of trust billions losing trust in one of the most trusted uh, institutions and professions you know on the planet where where are we at with all of that? Um, is there a reinvention that needs to take place? How long does it take to, to patch it all up and, and get it back to where it was? Or maybe never. I don't know.
6: In my book, Courage to Face COVID-19, we define the biopharmaceutical complex. The bio-pharm- This is what we say it is. All right. The biopharmaceutical complex at the top, we think, is a world economic forum. And they're right there with the World Health Organization, Gates Foundation, the organization that Gates and WF founded in 2017, CEPI, Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness, Welcome Trust, Rockefeller Foundation, Unitaid, Gavi, all the regulatory agencies, uh, the pharmaceutical companies, and the in vitro diagnostics, they're the suppliers. And this syndicate now is very powerful. And it has aspirations. Remember at the top, World Economic Forum, they meet every year in Davos. They've been meeting for a long time to plan this out. Klaus uh, Schwab, in his book "Covid 19 and the, and the Great Reset," he says that Covid 19 will be an opportunity to establish a new world order. That's that's the aspiration of the complex. They want a new world order. They're working very hard at it. You know, we should take them at face value. Bill Gates has said that we, should, you know, he has aspirational statements to mass vaccinate the world for many different diseases. I mean, these are aspirational statements. And uh and we should understand that you know the rules are when they can declare a national emergency. Now the WHO wants unilateral power to do this mm-hmm. now for the world. The doors of treasuries open and money flows to recipients in the complex. We we you know, we spent 10% of the GDP, the US, 10% of the US Treasury literally just flowed out to entities in the complex. And they all financially benefit. And you're right, corruption and conflict of interest is ripe. Let me give you an example. Former FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb is on the board of Pfizer. Pfizer's in the complex. Gottlieb is advising Americans to take Pfizer shots on TV stations. We also found out that he was influencing Twitter and content modulation to suppress information on natural immunity. So he's corrupt. It's in the wide open. Look at after him, Stephen Hahn. FDA commissioner. He goes to the venture capital firm for Moderna. So these guys are working for the next job. How about Jeremy Farrar? He worked with Francis Collins and and Anthony Fauci to create the misdirection on the origins of COVID, saying that SARS CoV 2 came out of the Chinese market. That was Jeremy Farrar who coordinated those papers. He's at the Wellcome Trust. Now he's a senior scientist at WHO. So, you can see that people are moving within the complex. They're becoming incredibly rewarded for participation in this attempt to establish a new world order.
0: Welcome Trust, Eco Health Alliance. They're such benign sounding names, aren't they? Huh?
6: They are. And, and, and the complex is well defined. Several books define them. Probably the, the most comprehensive is Peter Bregan, uh, COVID 19 and the Global Predators, but they're defined in my book. Courage to Face COVID-19, uh, a deep dive on Anthony Fauci is done by Robert F. Kennedy in his book, The Real Anthony Fauci. By the way, Robert F. Kennedy just announced he's running for U.S. president. Uh, we have a book about the all-cause mortality, a very comprehensive monograph by Edward Dowd, former BlackRock executive uh, you know these books have come forward, and they can't be corrupted because they're in print. You can hang on to them, and it's they're not going to change like Wikipedia or Google. So we encourage everybody to get the books. Uh, there's there's only about half a dozen of them because we need to understand what's going on.
0: Um, just to finish up, you're not, I suppose, a legal mind. You're, a, you're you're a medical mind, but at some point there has to be. You can't do all this and not be accountable, right? So have you thought? Everything you've seen, experienced, data sets, incoming um, attacks, all of that, and, and knowing what you know, what sort of accountability needs to occur at some point, do you think? Bearing in mind, you never want this to happen again, right?
6: You never do. But, you know, I think the real challenge is for the public to stand up. I don't think there's going to be a single court or a prime minister or senator or president who's going to save people. It's not going to happen. I think people have to save themselves. If everybody in the world right now said, no, no more jabs, no more masks, return to normal, and this thing would be over with. So this is really about the will of the people. We hope there's going to be special prosecutors and justice and international court, but I don't really have any high hopes for that. You know, the the courts are corrupt at this point in time. Most of them are part of this false narrative.
0: Meantime, carnage everywhere. death. Um, families, you know, change forever. And, and you know, so sad, right? You know that more than anyone.
6: It, it's heartbreaking to see. And now a recent Rasmussen poll done over the holidays showed that one in four Americans know somebody who's died of the vaccine. I mean, mm. this is worse than a war. We've lost over 500,000 people shortly after taking the jab. We lost 59,000 in Vietnam War. This is ten t- nearly ten times as bad as Vietnam, and it's still going on.
0: And I know one person I'm certain of, close friend of mine who, who's there as well. So it, it arrives on the on the doorstep, you know, and and more and more people are finding that. Dr. Peter McCullough, thank you so much for making a bit of time for us on Reality Check Radio. It's uh, fascinating listening to you, uh, the information that you have, and. Wow, it just comes out. I don't know where you store it all, <laughs> but uh, that, that's amazing. I'm sure that's been uh, of great interest to our listeners. All the best uh, with what you're doing and, and the fight that y- you carry on with, and maybe we'll catch up again some other time.
6: Well, thanks for having me. Make sure you follow me on my website, PeterMcCulloughMD.com, my my uh, book, Courage to Face COVID, uh, podcast, America Out Loud, Talk Radio, McCullough Report, In Substack, Courageous Discourse. I'm there doing the best I can for the world. Let's work together and let's close the crisis and move on.
0: We'll leave it right there, Dr. McCullough. Thank you for that. Nice to talk to you.
4: Okay, bye bye. Rational discussion, common sense, open debate, RCR, Reality Check Radio with Paul Brennan.
0: Paul Brennan here on Reality Check Radio. Really interesting to hear from Dr. Peter McCullough there. I hope you found um, uh, that useful and obviously interesting. What a speaker he is. Our next interview is coming up in a few minutes. It was back in March 2022 that Justice Cook ruled in the High Court that although the mandates in the health and education sector were a breach of human rights, they were justified. Now that decision is being appealed and we'll be talking to Rachel Mortimer of NZT SOS New Zealand Teachers, speaking out for science, and Dr Alison Goodwin, a GP who was present for that original hearing of the case back in March 2022 and has done a deep dive into the 50-page judgment from Justice Cook. They'll join me shortly to talk about uh, the original case and the appeal coming up. But first, some music history. We'll have a, a quick music break. It was on this day, April 11th in 1981, that Van Halen guitarist Eddie Van Halen married actress Valerie Bertinelli they separated in 2001 and divorced in 2007. Valerie Bertinelli, born in 1960, an American actress, she first achieved recognition as an adolescent, portraying Barbara Cooper Royer on the sitcom One Day at a Time, which ran between 75 and 84 for which she won two Golden Globe Awards for Best Supporting Actress in a series, miniseries or television. Yes, they walked down the aisle on this day back in 1981 and instead of saying, I do, maybe they said, jump. Reality Check Radio still to come before nine o'clock. We'll hear from Dr. David Bell, an insider. used to be with the WHO, a public health physician with years of experience all around the world. And uh, he'll be talking about the WHO. are they a force for good and his experience with them and his experience of of doing the work he has been doing over decades that's to come before 10 o'clock and then after 10 it is rodney hyde and real talk and then from one the truth speaker show with tobias tahi it'll take us through to four and then replays after that on reality check radio so in March 2022, the High Court ruled that although the vaccine mandates in the health and education sector were a breach of human rights, they were demonstrably justified in a free and democratic society. Mm, really? After taking advice, I'm reading from the NZT SOS Appeal PDF, after taking advice, our members in the education sector voted to continue the fight and file an appeal against the decision, And that's what we're about to talk about now. And joining me is Rachel Mortimer, Head of English and Social Science, obviously from the teaching profession. And Rachel, thanks for joining us. Thank you. And Dr. Alison Goodwin, who is obviously a doctor. And Alison has done the job for us of, I think, attending uh, virtually anyway, that hearing uh, originally, and also wading through the paperwork, Alison, I believe. 50 pages, didn't you say, when we were chatting just before?
3: Yes, yes. A lengthy judgment by Justice Cook. Yeah.
0: Okay. So let's start, sort of set the scene with, with what happened back then. And Rachel, the mandates and how that applied to the education sector. So take us back and remind us what happened there.
5: So uh, around November, the call came out uh, from the government that they indeed, after they said they would not mandate and they said that they would not... Um, do anything uh, to punish those people who didn't get vaccinated, the call came out that we, as teachers or in the education sector, would be uh, mandated, Um, and that was for teachers, for groundskeepers, anybody who had contact with students, teacher aides, office staff. Um, there was about 5,000 educators um, that we know of. There's perhaps more who had to leave their job or refuse point blank and lost their jobs because of the mandate. That doesn't include all the other teachers who were um, who under duress went and got the shot, and it doesn't include the teachers who ended up getting um, vaccine injuries from the shot. Um, so we launched a, a couple of court cases along with the doctors and the midwives, which was the first one, to look at whether this was a fair and just um, decision by the government to basically cripple the education system um, and the other sectors uh, for a vaccination that didn't really have a lot of background to it.
0: So there must have been some sort of awareness that you used the word cripple, that this would have really impacted. I mean, 5,000, what, what's that as a percentage? I mean, it sounds like uh, it's I a reasonable not, number, right?
5: It, it is a reasonable number. Our first case, um, we put it to uh, the judge, and our first uh, high court judge. Uh, Case we put it to the judge that this indeed would have a detrimental effect not only on the people who were losing their jobs, um, but the students and um, basically whole communities. So we know that it goes right from early childhood all the way up to tertiary sector. We know since the mandates have come in, um, we know that Early childhood centres that have been going for years have had to close their doors, which has disrupted their um. It's disrupted their their whole communities. Um, we know that childhood care centres are very hard to um, find teachers for. It's gone quite. Um, in some cases, there are huge waiting roles for children to be put into these centres because we don't have enough of them anymore. So many of them close their doors. Um, When you move up to primary and secondary, we've had two years of interruption uh, for our students. So some of the students at level one, two and three of NCA have gone through this whole COVID debacle and they've left with not really the teaching they should have had to prepare them for tertiary education. And even now, our schools are shutting their doors and sending home students, um, especially senior students, because they can't um, afford to or they don't have enough teachers to keep the schools going because people who are in the education are still getting COVID their second or third time. Um, the so, vaxxed ones. Yeah, the vaxxed ones. Um to make it really interesting the schools are in panic mode so they're hiring uh, teachers college students who are not experienced enough with limited authorities to teach they're hiring anybody with skills who may be able to teach and giving them a limited authority to teach and they're also bringing in people or paying huge exorbitant fees to bring in people from overseas. So teachers who do not know our kids, do not know the culture of our schools, um, usually with um, English being their second language and then plopping them straight into the middle of our their, their schools for education. And on top of that, they're doing this big um, NCA refresh, which is just a complete nightmare. So, yeah, it has an impact and it's got a huge impact still on our students.
0: So no loyalty to New Zealand citizens. No. They're prepared to put uh, inadequate, well, uh, people whose professional um, standard is is not there, you would say.
5: Yeah.
0: Uh, the, the students coming out of the teacher's college, et cetera, not good to go. They must have, they, it's always the they, they must have known when when this whole thing kicked off, it would have these sorts of consequences, or maybe you'll you'll tell me they didn't, and that the way it would sort of roll out would be predictable and obvious, yet they were prepared to throw so many people under the bus. That's kind of hard to figure out for me.
5: Um, What's really interesting is when I had talks with PPTA representatives, um, when I did point this out to some of the PPTA representatives, their comments were that, oh, well, I guess the schools will just have to deal with it. Um, there was no sympathy at all about the position that it put schools, principals, boards of trustees, the whole community... You're paying under- the subs? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They've got to work was- for you? Yeah, well, they're supposed to. They're supposed to work for us, but that that hasn't really happened at all.
0: They're very closely affiliated with the Labour Party, aren't they?
5: Yeah, yes, they are.
0: Is there something in that, do you think?
5: Um, yes, I think so, because what's really interesting is at the time of the decision of the mandates um Bloomfield stated like that schools hadn't been a setting where they saw transmission and in fact the idea to go to these mandates did not directly come from the um, Ministry of Health it came as a push from the education department because they wanted confidence to keep people from um, being worried or scared that they were able to contain this virus so it was really more about a public health perception rather than public health so yeah the Ministry of health didn't actually have that behind them when they first pushed it. I know many teachers who did try and bargain with their principals and their board of trustees, and they did offer things like um, you know, specialist subjects, teachers did offer to do some of the work from home, um, to do it via Zoom, make sure the kids were still getting that um, the teaching. Um, I know of one teacher who was a specialist in her field at the school, and she was the only one there who could teach that particular subject. Um, When she begged them to do the work from home and she said she didn't even need to be paid and to just keep her job open so she could come back and keep that subject alive, um, she was told she wasn't getting the vaccination, so she was terminated from that. And to this day, um, that school does not have that subject going.
0: How many principals and school trustees have treated people so badly that really they're not fit for the role? They're not leaders. And can people who have that sort of attitude to their profession, can they be uh, relied upon to perform their duties to any sort of standard? I would say no.
5: Well, the interesting thing is, is that many people in the school system, um, the ones who were thrown out like a sack of rubbish, they were treated terribly. Um, We have teachers who were getting threatening emails from principals saying you need to just get this stupid jab, you stupid person. Um, We've put all that through to the the Human Rights Commission just with the um, the stuff that people have laid complaints and we've all been told that this is just under COVID, it didn't really matter and you had no rights. Um, People who had been in the profession for 25 years, they didn't even get an acknowledgement. There was, um, I had people who had been at a school between the two of them. They've been at, at the same school for 50 years between them. I'm a married couple. And they didn't even get a goodbye at the assembly. They simply got told to walk out and not tell the children why they were going. Oh, there was no correctly. contact from 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 um, anyone else. You, you became a pariah and your name was mud.
0: Okay, so what is that revealing true personalities there, personality types? There has to be some explanation for being so heartless, right?
5: No, so I think when you look at, I mean, I, I teach history and I te- and I, you know, I look at a little bit of psychology here. I think it comes down to the fact that the government played a really good fear campaign. People were really worried about their, their lives. Yeah, but their, these are smart people, their,
0: right? Look, educated they, they
5: people. Are smart pe- they are smart people, but people are driven by fear fear is a great motivator. I tell my students at school, you know, when it comes down to it, you you, looking at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you have the important thing for safety and food and food and water and, and actually above that or below that is your necessity for human relationships. So you would do anything, to To make sure that you were safe, it is that innate need for safety, and that that did come out. The, the government played a very good um, game, and basically saying that we were all going to die, you know.
0: <laughs>
3: yeah. Yes, there were there's behavioural psychologists were advising at least the government in the UK and undoubtedly New Zealand's government on how to perpetuate the fear and how to get the behaviours that they wanted. You know, there have been top-level behavioral psychologists advising how to run
0: this whole thing. Um, that's Alison. Um, but uh, that meant the price of that is destroying people.
5: Yeah, it was.
0: And that's yeah. okay. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. all right.
5: Yeah. Um, I, I think probably the biggest thing that, I, that many people have a problem with is the is that nobody has acknowledged just exactly what has happened. Um, If people have been allowed to go back into schools, nobody, you've you've been given directives not to talk about it. Do not bring up the mandates. Do not talk about what happened. Um, And and it's all part of this whole sweep it all under the rug and pretend it didn't happen. Guilty
0: consciences.
5: that too. Um, But there are a lot of hurt people out there. There's so many hurt people that that are completely broken by what happened. They've lost family. They've lost friends. They've lost, um, you know... In some of the schools, I know for me, my school was it was like another family to me Um, and to lose everything in just such a quick and 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 horrible way was the most heartbreaking thing that I that I've ever faced and many other people have ever faced. Some of the educators refuse to go back to school. Now, even if they came back and and they said, please come back to school, you know, we really need you. They're so broken and traumatized by what happened to them that it's actually better for their mental health that they don't do that. And and that's that's the real shame. But nobody acknowledges it. Nobody acknowledges the vaccine injuries. Nobody acknowledges the trauma that we went through. Um, That's very, very hard because how can you confront anything or even get
0: over it if it just is thrown under that rug and nobody talks about it. Alison Goodwin, the I think the, the case in March 2022, um, the judge said the COVID mandates were demonstrably justified in a free and democratic society. You're a doctor and you were across the case. Demonstrably, how so?
3: Well, I, I mean, I guess... An ordinary person would potentially ask, you know, if something was going to be demonstrably justified, you know, first of all, is it necessary? Secondly, does the measure that you want to introduce uh, do what you're expecting it to do? Is it effective? And is it safe? And I'm not quite sure which of the order order those three things should go in. But those are the sort of questions you should ask. Do do we actually need to do this? Uh, Is what we're proposing safe? Uh, And is it actually going to do what we want it to do? Um, so, the, the, to me, those three things needed to be demonstrated. And, and Justice Cook actually said that there was a um, significant evidential burden placed on the Crown to demonstrate those things. So, effectively, the government had to demonstrate that it was necessary, that it was safe, that it was effective to do those things. And uh, I guess the, do- the teachers are appealing the fact that uh, we don't think that the Crown actually did that.
0: But the judge did.
3: Well, the judge, yes, the judge has agreed. The but, judge is uh, a smart
0: man, <laughs> learned, educated, not a fool. You'd think. Yes,
3: so yes, well, yeah, you know, I don't know how much pressure or whatever has gone on, but you know, some of the statements that um he made uh, about the the scientific evidence that we presented um suggest well, maybe he didn't actually engage with it sufficiently, and that's that's what as doctors we felt. Uh, happened, that our evidence, you know, we had evidence from um, subject experts. We had Dr. Byron Bridle, uh, a vaccinologist from Canada, uh, Dr. Jeffrey Cramp, a public health physician here in New Zealand, Nikolai Petrovsky, an Australian vaccine developer, uh, and Norman Fenton, who I think is an epidemiologist in London. All of those four uh, provided affidavits and expert witnesses, uh, affidavits as expert witnesses, um, whereas the crown just had Ian, uh, Ian Town and Ashley Bloomfield. They that was the experts for the crown. Uh, so our experts provided a whole lot of um, scientific evidence about the, well about the need for the vaccine, about its lack of efficacy to do the job, and about significant safety concerns. And uh, Justice Cook didn't really engage with that. You know, some of the comments he made in the judgment were uh, that there are factual matters that are in dispute. Uh, there was plainly a contest of expert evidence. You know, so our experts said one thing, the government experts said the other thing. Um, many of the opinions expressed by the applicants, so that was the doctors and the teachers experts, were not responded to. So the doctors and the teachers experts said this, and the Crown didn't bother rebutting it or saying anything a- about it. Uh, and he said, effectively, I had two sets of expert evidence. Uh, effectively in parallel, I was unable to make findings on some of the more technical aspects. Uh, you know, so there, there's a number of statements in his judgment that sort of suggest, well, actually, maybe it wasn't fully, um, you know, that he wasn't fully convinced or, you know, he hadn't engaged with the science enough. I guess that's...
0: Or he gave answer. more credibility, even if it was no information at all, to anything the government side said, that, yeah. a bias towards that.
3: Yes. That, that, that's what it felt like they pay was him. watching it what's that
0: they pay him <laughs>
3: <Yeah>. <laughs> who knows what goes on in theory the courts are separate from the um other parts of government but
5: what what's really interesting is that in one of the affidavits it, it states that um, Bloomfield said, and just after the um, the protest in Wellington, he said it's, it risks public confidence and compliance with both the voluntary and non voluntary measures if people see that the people they can be defeated by a minority of people who refuse to comply. So if well, this it is, is social there,
0: engineering. This is Ashley Bloomfield. Yeah. So that's not his job.
5: <laughs> but but think how terrible it would look if, if you know, they've made people go and get the safe and effective jabs and they're still making people go and get the safe and effective jabs. How does it look if it comes out, if, if, it's, if it's in our favour? In some ways, you have to question whether that pressure was there. Too bad. It, it, was, it, was about, it was about a perception of people feeling safe. They made people feel unsafe, and so they gave them the, the answer. They gave them the, the safety measure to make sure that we could all work together and, and carry on in society. Imagine how it would look if it came out that actually it wasn't what, what they said.
0: That's how it's come out. I know. So, so it has. So they were looking after their own, excuse my French, asses. They were saving their own asses, weren't they?
5: Yeah, potentially. Potentially. That oh, come time. on. We
0: know how human nature works. Yeah don't we all right so that leaves a whole lot of broken people not only the workers the workforce but i'm interested in how did that affect the students the kids and bearing in mind there's a whole range of kids at school these days not like back in my day when we're all about the same you know there's um special needs um there are different uh, communities decile communities the relationships that you were mentioning before between teachers and students, almost kind of like a family relationship, I would imagine in some cases.
3: Yeah.
0: <clears throat> okay. The effect on the workforce is one thing. How retarded from that has education become for a lot of students? I think when we look at, we, we, NZTS, so we
5: uh, Sent out a study. We sent out a survey to members and people in the communities, and children and parents, just to ask how the effect of the mandates had what what effect it actually had on them. Um, And the results we got back, I think we had over a thousand people who responded, and the results we got back were very much, you know, the students, uh, you know, they was they were grappling with a lot more depression. There was, I mean, it wasn't just the fact that they lost their teaching. But at that time we had students who were also being pressured to go and take the jab. We had students who were in some of these these communities, they were having to work part-time jobs to help support their family due to you know income and, and 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 help them make ends meet and they were pressured to go and get the jabs by their bosses. Um, and so their health was put at risk, even because, I mean, Alison will tell you that, you know, a lot of the studies coming out that the children definitely didn't need need this safe do, and effective We could talk dad. about that in a moment. Um, yeah. So they were pressured. They were also refused from a whole lot of places. So social social life. Students need to have their peers around them. And they were suddenly told that they couldn't go on rowing competitions or going to um, any of these like drama or even they were actually barred from all these sporting things. I had one story where a young man was, he he refused, he, he, he was allowed to go to a competition with his peers. But so he, they had to sterilize everything beforehand and they had um. to sterilize everything afterwards. And then they would put a rope up. And he had to be on the other side of the rope to eat his meal away from everybody else because he was so dangerous, so toxic. This this is insane. This is a teenager. I can't believe I'm hearing this. uh, Yeah. So that was just one story. Were they also
0: holding pitchforks?
5: uh, No, no. But I do know of some schools who, when the students refused to wear masks or they refused to have vaccinations, some of the schools did um, come down on them heavily or se- segregated them, put them in timeout spaces where they're away from their peers to keep their peers safe. So um, the problem with society is if you give one group a little bit of power, there is always going to be this need to try and um, people abuse that power. and a lot of people. people. Did yeah, abuse yeah, that bring power. The ha-
0: bring the hammer down. Yeah. Yeah. So Ashley could get his knighthood, right?
5: Oh, yeah.
0: Yep. Well done, Ashley. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, the threat, the medical threat, Alison, uh, I think pretty well by that stage, we all understood that if you were of a certain age, your risk of anything bad was like infinitesimal, one in a million or uh, kind of in that ballpark. Young people particularly were, you know, it was a a bit of a walk in the park, COVID, for, for young people. No big deal. So why the hysteria around young people when we already knew that?
3: Well, it's that's a good question. I mean, this well, that was sort of late 2021 when the mandates came in. It was evident fairly early in 2020 that it was the elderly and the frail who were most at risk. Um, and so, I mean, the only conclusion that I can come to with the way everything's played out is that there's a bigger agenda. This has nothing to do with health. Uh, it's never been about the health of the population. There are too many things that we did against health uh, and not enough that we did to promote health for them, for anyone to be able to say, well, it was about health. Uh, and so this whole mandating of, of students, of mandating of teachers, mandating of healthcare workers, mandating of everybody, it's a bigger agenda.
0: The interesting thing you just mentioned, health, uh, education, the fundamental institutions of a society, aren't they? This is where you know the rubber hits the road. There, this is where you get educated, so you can become a useful member of society and have a reasonably enjoyable, interesting life. Healthcare, yeah, you know, it's it's life or death. Yet these seem to have been the most targeted.
3: Oh, and the, the defence force as well as the defence oh, and, and defence and,
0: and police. Yeah, sorry. But but as far as the public are concerned, you know, if hospitals are losing so many people, they they have no capacity anymore. Five thousand out of education, a lot of them very skilled people in in you know quite uh, uh, crucial areas. You know, the system starts to break down, doesn't it? They're prepared to let it break down.
5: Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. I think so, and I think one of the the saddest things that I've witnessed going back to school is, or, or just even just doing a little bit of relief teaching, is that the kids are now so scared of everything. It has been, you know, that that they're, they're fearful of everything. I, I had a wee a wee year seven boy come up to me and go, "Oh, Miss, this is happening. There's going to be a massive eruption. We're all going to," and I'm like. No, dude, it's okay, you know, don't worry, you know, you're getting, you're getting all this messaging left, right and centre, watch out for COVID, you're going to die from COVID, this is going to happen, you know, the, everything is just all doom and gloom and these poor students are, are just being hit from all sides. Um, it, it's having such a huge impact on just everybody. Yes, so I, everything
0: I think, is being catastrophized, isn't it? Yeah. Everything, even the weather. Yep. Yeah. Man. Yeah. Okay. So, what happens? What happens next? Uh, who's representing uh, this uh, appeal? And uh, what's the timeline? How's it going to play out?
5: So, um, we have Matthew Hague um, representing us from Frontline Law. Um, it, it's really wonderful. He's jumped on. He's, a, he's an amazing lawyer um, who's been just wonderful talking through through points and making sure that he has all the information. Um, the at the moment, um, the, the appeal is on the nineteenth of this month in Wellington in the Court of Appeal. Yeah, um, we are hoping that it's going to be not a huge timeline before we have an, a decision about what side or. Do you what think how they might is. slow
0: walk it? Sorry, yeah, Up in Rachel. <laughs> potential for that? Do you think because it's politically potentially politically damaging in an election year? And you've all already got chippy a bit yeah. on the ropes in the last week or so. There's This could be slow walked, couldn't it?
5: Yeah, it could be. And it would be really, really sad if, for example, they do slow walk it and the decision comes out if a new government gets in because, you know, with everybody's way of feeling about everything. um, If, say, Labour doesn't get in and a national or another group of people do get in, um, it, it's going to be almost they might try and kind of brush it aside again because you know it happened in the past it was a COVID year um I I know I was talking to Alison earlier today it's really interesting when all this happened we've sent letters out to human rights commissions to teachers councils to the health and disability when all this happened we've sent all these letters out to boards everything and all the response is uh, under COVID-19 um Bill, everything is acceptable, and you have no rights, basically. So, whether they try and keep that going, and then just say, "Oh, was that was the old government? We've got a new one, and let's go for gold." There's a know. lot
0: of there's a lot of let's just uh, move move on, put it in the rearview mirror, sweep it under the the carpet yeah. sort of attitude. I guess I guess if you've been part of the mass psychosis, that's what people call it. It's traumatic to revisit it. I would imagine you just want it gone.
5: Um. Yeah, I guess, well, it's, I think everybody, I mean, when you look back on 2020 right through to, to now, it, it, it has been traumatic for everybody. Whatever side you have been on, you have been traumatized. Either you've been incredibly frightened to go out to the, the to the supermarket because some of those allergies might jump out at you from the, the shelves, you know, keep five meters apart from each other, people not being able to go to funerals, I mean, people have been traumatized with that fear, but people have also been traumatized by the actions of the government. So um, nobody likes to admit they're wrong. That That's the thing, it, it, it is. Um, uh, you know, the saddest thing with us all um, that has happened is is seeing the actions of New Zealanders. Yeah. I, I probably the most disheartening for me was not so much what the government did, but the actions of the people who followed it through. When we had our last court case um, last year, we we many of us were at the um, train station just having signs up, where we were surrounded by police and watched for the two or three days that we were there. Um, I remember. I remember one time I was, I, I went into the, tried to go to the bathroom at the train station where they told me to get out and people like me were not welcome um, to use a public bathroom. So uh, the, the actions of those people, I don't think that it'll be very hard for them to admit what they've done because they treated other people like they were less than nothing and they justified that by saying that they were protecting everybody else you had the government saying let's inform of each other i mean during lockdowns they were encouraging people to call the police and and you know i know of one young lady who moved down from auckland with permission and then into a small town and she had the police on her doorstep um, because she had left auckland and did she have the paperwork to show for it because some neighbor had noticed that she had come into the you know it's just people got really because they were scared. Again, it goes back to that fear. They were so scared and they were so um, willing to believe what the government was saying. And because they, they were,
0: were angry. They were made uh, angry.
5: They were angry. But also the government was saying, we are the, your one source of truth. I think there was an article um, overseas where they were talking about how, oh, you know, everyone should move on and just forget it and all be, all be friends and huggy, huggy and <laughs> yeah, sing, sing kumbaya. Yeah. and. I don't know if I agree with that because the only way you can move forward in any healing I find is if you actually talk and you talk about what happened and you admit, you know, this is what happened and you, yeah, I I don't think that people can truly heal until we have that acknowledgement, which is one of the reasons why we want to go to court. We want this to be acknowledged that what the government did was so far above what powers they should have that we need an acknowledgement that what they did was wrong because the scary thing is if we do not win this, we will keep on fighting. But if we never win this, it means who's to say that our government or the next government that comes in and says, right, everybody who's got blue eyes, I'm sorry, you're an aberration. Let's let's get over. I mean, there, there, there is a point in time where you have to go how far is too far?
0: Well, it'll be climate. So um, you can imagine a scenario where I'm sceptical about climate. And there might be um, traces around showing that I am. Well, we don't like you anymore. (laughs) So, using your analogy there with blue eyes, you're labeled, and maybe you can only live where we tell you to live. Yeah. Or you can only do certain things that we tell you because of your views. You know, it would be so easy to do it. And you can see that creep happening now, can't you? You can see Mm -hmm. that there. Um, So, uh, you mentioned, uh, Rachel, that um, a lot of the um, education sector workers that were mandated out who might now have the opportunity, I think you mentioned it, uh, to come back into the workforce are choosing not to.
5: Yeah. yeah. So we're, we're, not, not, getting
0: the, we're not getting the bounce back.
5: No. No, well, I mean, there, there's a couple of things. So there are groups of people in the education sector who are mandated who are saying, well, actually – you know, so heartbroken that that is traumatic going back and facing people who treated them as, as pariahs. I mean, you have to understand it just wasn't the whole you're terminated, but there was stuff all over social media calling them bad right. educators. They were, what are they doing? They obviously don't care about the children. They're selfish. They're so, you know, what people like that should not bad people children. You know, yeah. that's the sort of stuff. And, and so that has really it's been really heartbreaking for those people but again there are whole groups of people who have been trying to get back and they've been applying for whatever jobs that they can i know somebody who's applied for 18 jobs and not received one call back and they're well qualified and not nothing and nothing so so is there a
0: database of who is and who isn't then that can be uh Looked yeah. at when they're assessing job applications.
5: Well, as I said, the Teachers' Council, when when you apply for a job, the Board of Trustees will look up the Teachers' Council, and if you have a black mark against your name, then that will be a very good indicator not to hire you because normally the Teachers' Council only give you a black mark if you've done, or if you've committed a really big offence, like uh, abused somebody also, or
0: So being non-vaxxed is like a disciplinary? Yes. Categorised as a disciplinary yeah. issue, is it? Yes. What? Yeah. Crikey.
5: Yeah. So, so yeah, so those ones, those people who were terminated got letters from the Teachers' Council saying that they now had um, this against their name. Not that it was going to be held against them or anything, but it is still there. And as I said, uh, principals, when they are hiring, will be able to access that information and will see that they were non-compliant, which, and of course... Don't you hate
0: that term, (laughs) non-compliant? People shiver with fear when they hear that.
5: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because you really don't want teachers in schools who did not follow the directions of the government. That would be catastrophic, really, wouldn't it?
0: Um, I want to ask you uh, in a moment what you think the chances are. Alison, I mean, this is not like um, uh, education sector, but you're in in the medical field, and there's some similarities here. Where are things at in health? With uh mandates, I believe they have not been relaxed or they haven't gone away, sort of like the last holdout. Um,
3: well, yeah, they, yes, they're not under um healthcare workers, aren't under a government mandate, uh, as such. They've outsourced but, it well, yes, yes, to to Fatuora or Health New Zealand, so they still, so anyone working wanting to work in a public hospital, um, and possibly some of the ancillary services related to the public hospital are still subject to. A mandate and i think as far as i understand that's three doses that they need to have had uh at least by now um why, General why three, just,
0: why, three? We're after four? Why, why, why only three
3: well i don't know I mean, there might be a revolt at number four like there, there, there might be a mass oh. walkout if they try and force the fourth one I, i'm not entirely sure on that but um i think you might even as well go the all the way
0: that, right you might as well go all the way
3: <laughs> well I, I mean sometimes it feels like that's what is is happening like the whole system is deliberately being disabled you know, when you read what, what's going on. But, um, yes, there's a three. For general practice, though, I think there's a little bit more flexibility. And, um, yeah, certainly some GPs have been able to go back um, to work now. I guess it depends on their employment situation, whether they're part of a big corporate that's made their own mandates or whether they're part of a smaller practice um, with people that are either more desperate to hire a GP or more open to, um, you know, t- GPs that aren't vaccinated.
0: Meanwhile, and the vaccinated babies. GPs are on, what, their seventh dose of COVID now? Or seventh uh, infection of COVID? Seventh
3: infection. Oh, I don't know if it's quite seven infections. Okay, well, four,
0: three, you know.
3: <laughs> Certainly, yeah, there's a number of people that, that have had it more than once. Um, yeah.
0: Okay, so is there any, um, do you think, any prospect of that outsourced mandating ending? Because we've got workforce issues, haven't we, um, that are, are constraining capacity causing problems in hospitals and affecting people's health care.
3: Oh, absolutely, yes. Well, I, I don't know. There's been a recent um, discussion document with Te Whatuora outlining, you know, a number of other immunisation requirements, not just COVID uh, there. So, I mean, it's almost like they're increasing the requirements rather than reducing them.
0: Oh, gosh. All right. Um, so uh, chances of success with this. Uh-huh. What, what do you think? Can you put a, like a percentage on it? I've got a feeling that you might not get over the line just because of the way things have gone now, but what do I know? And I hope I'm wrong.
5: Yeah, I, I'm thinking I would really like to be kind of 100% we've got a shot of this, um, but I think with the current climate, we have to also be a realist, um, maybe 50-50. Um, regardless of whether we win or lose, though, we will we will still keep on fighting. I think that's the one thing about the education sector is that, you know, we, we, we're, we're triers. Um, you know. So we will keep on doing this, but we are finding, like, we've... <laughs> Many of our members, as I said, have lost their jobs or they've ended up going from well-paying jobs and being a good member of society to um, people who are just, you know, on the benefit or... Um, on low paying wages but they've managed to to help um, contribute to these court costs um, we still are fundraising for the court costs so we've, we have a give a little page um, that that we are doing um, but it, it, uh, tell,
0: it, tell it, us it, the tell us the address of that because people wanted to jump in so if you while you're talking or whatever you can bring that up and yeah. give us the, the the give a little page address for that
5: yeah, no, I, I will do that. It's just even if you jump on to give a little and you just put NZT. Oh, okay, do a search. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yep, just do a search. It'll come up.
0: NZT SOS. Yep. Um,
5: yeah, it, it does come up. Um, the thing is, with that, so we do need to keep on fighting, regardless of of whether we win or lose. If if we win, it means that we will then start looking at putting maybe a class action suit. Um, it'll be it'll set a precedent, and we can have other sectors such as the. That could be sector. huge. it would be huge. it be it'll, it'll impact so many people. Um, because it's not just been education or health or, or um, defence. It's been, I mean, so many sectors around the country were mandated with people who who really didn't want to have it. And, and if they do judge in our favour, it would set a precedent which would give the opportunity for people to go, hang on a second, we were adversely affected by this. We're going to go and try and get compensation and acknowledgement. And that's what we should have. We should have compensation and acknowledgement. People have lost their homes. They've lost, I mean, People have lost everything. They've lost family. I mean, the the trauma from all of this has left a really deep scar on New Zealand, and there needs to be acknowledgement and there needs to be compensation. So that that would be happening. We would still fight regardless of whether we lost. If we win, on the other hand, again, we will will mount another court case to try and get compensation for people. That's just what we're going to do.
0: And that's going to be, I would imagine, a huge total, given the numbers involved. In fact, yeah. that could be that could be a significant hit on the country's finances potentially. Yeah, yeah. Or am I being too dramatic?
5: No, I think there would be a, a good number of people. I, I think even now, and and just and generally, when you talk to people, the amount of people who say I only took this shot because I was forced to do so.
0: Oh, here's a question because I know you mentioned that earlier. What do you think the percentage of the workforce, education workforce, um, who took the shots felt coerced? Didn't do it because they were, you know, doing it to save grandma and themselves and everything, but did it reluctantly um, just to maintain the job and all the other things. Coercion.
5: I think a huge proportion. I know a lot of schools were potentially going to lose almost half their staff, for those people who were not going to get it. But then in the end, they they weighed up their job and their livelihood and went and got the vaccination. Um, we have people, I know people who um, were overseas, from overseas and they, they'd been here for a few years. Their visa was dependent on them still working right. and they had no real choice. Like The amount of people that I know personally who, went and got it because, not because they wanted it, not because they believed in it. They knew that there were risks and they still, I had people crying as they were getting this shot, sobbing hysterically as they got this shot and they still went and had to go get it. for. And that, that again is something. And then the vaccine injured. How many vaccine injured, Alison, do we have in this country so yeah. far?
0: Do we know, Alison?
5: No, not officially, not at all, no. Have I mean, we there's... got
0: though like a dead wreck in ballpark?
3: Well, I mean, on the Medsafe um, website, the safety report, the latest one at the end of November, there were about three and a half thousand serious adverse events reported. Uh, But Medsafe also admits on its website that that's only about 5 percent, only about 5 percent of adverse events get reported. So those are the serious ones. There's 60 something thousand total adverse event reports on the Medsafe website, but if that's only 5%, you know, it's potentially 20 times those numbers, but they're being um, fobbed off, they're told they're anxious, they're told that this, they're, if they, you know, if they haven't mentioned that it might be due to the vaccine, the doctor's not going to bring it up. Uh, If they do ask, if they say, do you think the vaccine caused this, they're getting told no, nothing to do with that, or yeah, so yes, I think there are large numbers of people having all sorts of unusual medical events, uh, infections that they can't get rid of, heart attacks, strokes, blood clots, bells, palsy, shingles, uh, sudden death um, that, you know, isn't necessarily being attributed to the vaccine, that, that are, those events are happening in vast numbers. That's why our hospitals, you know, that's part of the reason why our hospitals are overwhelmed, but you're not hearing anything about that in mainstream media. No, You know, and oh. part of it's being put down to long COVID, long COVID with all the symptoms of fatigue and racing heart.
0: and Which uh, are the adverse pain. reaction?
3: Well, yes, Which I compared? mean, what is it? Is it actually long COVID or is it an adverse reaction to the vaccine or is it a combination of both? I mean, some people haven't had COVID, so it can't be long COVID. Um, well, it's
0: suspicious, yeah, 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 if you've had long COVID after the vaccine, that yeah. is a question. Now, it may not mean... You know, you could jump to conclusions there, but you've got to ask the question.
3: Yeah. Yeah, well, yes, the questions are not... Well, some people are trying to ask the questions, but um, the important questions are not being answered.
5: So so the one thing that happened during the mandate is that we were told that there would be exemptions and we have people who were adversely uh, affected by the first shot um, who ended up neurological damage and it's all been confirmed by doctors and universities and testing and stuff but they were still not eligible for an exemption to go back and they were told they had to take a second shot um, to continue to work in schools so one of the things that we will be talking about in our court case is that criteria for because we brought it up last time the criteria for the um, exemption because many people did have medical um, information that showed that they were not allowed to, that that to get this, this vaccine was potentially going to be very risky and harm them. Um, but yet again, that was not actually looked at.
0: Not enough. Um, we had um, on this program just on a week ago, a couple of folk are involved in the caregivers issue, you know, where their, their funding or, or payments were withdrawn, even if they're looking after family members in the home um, because they were unvaccinated. Of course, that caused huge hardship. And one of the women uh, that we were talking to who, who was in that situation had a child at home getting paid to be the caregiver, 700 a week, something like that. Anyway, she was eligible for an exemption and she went for an exemption. And guess who refused it? Christopher Hipkins, the Prime Minister refused it, yeah,
5: yeah,
0: first of all, he's just a guy from the hut. What does he know?
5: Yeah,
0: he's only ever been a student activist. What does he know? How come he is refusing a mother? I mean, I almost my blood boils. I can't mm-hmm. believe it. Yeah. who are these people?
5: Well, well, in regard to the 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 um that case, which Matthew Haig has also been doing, so our lawyer's been doing that particular case, Um, when you look at the early childhood um, mandates, it wasn't just the the teachers of of home-based care, for example, who were mandated. They were told that their children over the age of 16 in their household had to also be vaccinated, unless if they wanted to continue working. So you had people who were who were looking after children in their own homes, being told, I'm sorry, not just you, but everybody else in your home that is over the age of 16 has to get this shot. Um, and, yeah, and so some, some people lost their jobs because of that as well. They didn't want to. They may have had children that they thought it was actually more detrimental to get that vaccine, so they lost their jobs to protect their children.
0: Wow. Well. It's madness, isn't it? It's, it's like being on the inside of a, like one flew over the cuckoo's nest or something. Being um, in there.
5: When yeah. up is down and down is up, it's, it's yeah. completely, it's crazy. crazy. Yeah. Um, it would be really interesting to see. I have to say, in future years, to look back on this and actually have all the stories collated. I know people around the country are doing uh, stories like the died suddenly page on Facebook, which got shut down after it reached something like ten thousand members and people yes. commenting. They are trying to collate all this information, and and it keeps on being shut down, or it keeps on being um or disappearing um with that. And, and that, that's really interesting because I think we, there is a lot of stories out there. I think everybody has a story, whether it is their friend down the road in his 20s who suddenly had a heart attack or, um, you, you know, just story after story that surely people are starting to see that there is a correlation with what has happened in the last few years and what is happening now.
0: You'd think. Yeah, that would be a great thing. Yeah. Who knows what will happen? We might actually have not a two tier, but a separated society later right. on, because if you don't want to live with the people who impose that on you, you've got to find your own way, a parallel way of doing it. A lot of people are talking about that. How do you have a parallel sort of system where you can sort of go off the grid of the, of the mainstream and, and carry on um, being you, you know? Um, it's really interesting. That, that's for another day, but you know, who knows how this is going to sort of end up?
3: Yeah. Well, yes, yes. Well, it's not over yet because all the legislation that enabled it, and and like we were talking about before, nobody's acknowledged the harm that's happened. It could all happen again at the click of a tick of some fingers if the next virus comes. And I mean, there's been threats from those on high that yes, the next one's coming. Um, you know, they, they seem to again. know,
0: Alison. They seem seem to know in advance yep, that one's that's coming. <laughs> Probably even know what day it will land. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
3: Yeah,
0: well, oh, Marburg's I mean, in the paper
5: today. Yeah, well, well, that's it. It's again, that's that whole fear thing. It's just this whole build, build up. And, and when you look at say, hemorrhagic, is
0: the one to go, though, because that's the scariest one. The pictures yeah. look horrible. Monkeypox might have looked a bit gross, but you know, um, people bleeding from every orifice. That, that that's, oh, that's gold for propaganda.
3: That's the no, Marburg one
5: that's yeah, in Marburg. the paper today.
0: Yeah, yeah, so, Mabu, so what about yeah. the fungus one? Because
5: there's a fungus one out oh, too. Oh, even better. By the fungus and the zombie virus that's going
0: to happen. Yep. Brilliant. Can't wait. All right. Hey, thanks so much. Uh, that was really interesting chat. Rachel Mortimer and uh, Dr. Alison Goodwin. And, you know, I really hope this works out, but I, I shouldn't inject any pessimism into it. But just <laughs> given what's happened... And um, the things that you used to kind of rely on, not ever really panning out, I think there's a chance you, well, you've got to be ready. We've got to be ready that it might not go that way, but who knows,
5: right? Yep. no, that, that's right. I think we have to be optimistic. We have to be seen to be doing the right thing. I mean, that's the, this is the direction the teachers have taken. We've gone through and what the doctors have done as well. We, we've been seen doing, following the processes. That's what we've been doing is we simply want to follow the process, go through the, the courts, make sure that the law acknowledges what happens. And and I guess the best thing is just to make, well, the hope is that is it's going to pay off. Um, that, that is the hope.
0: And I guess Justice Cook Mm -hmm. went back to his chambers and then back home thinking he'd done a great day's work.
5: (laughs) I guess we'll find out in in 11 days when they have the court case uh, whether whether the other three judges presiding are going to agree with that or not. That's up to them at the end of the day.
0: All right, and we'll hopefully report the result we will of that. Uh, So thank you uh, so much, Rachel and Alison. All the best.
5: Thanks, Paul.
4: Rational Discussion. Common Sense. Open Debate. RCR. Reality Check Radio with Paul Brennan.
0: Yeah, and good luck to them. It would be nice to see a bit of justice return to the equation, let's say. Reality Check Radio with Paul Brennan. Uh, it's great to be here this morning. What well, a morning. We've had Phil Shaw talking about uh, <laughs> the state of our national security. That's how I I put it. That was earlier on. Uh, Dr. Peter McCullough, uh, of course, uh, what a guest and um, great to hear from him. And coming next on the program, I'll be talking to Dr. David Bell about the WHO. Now, unfortunately, again, a little bit snookered for time, so you won't hear the full version of that interview, which I recorded um, over the weekend. Uh, We will play about half of it, but I can assure you in the replay of this program after four o'clock. In the third hour of that replay, uh, you will hear the full version. And the full version will be available from our replays page at realitycheck.radio. It's just the way the cookie crumbles. No time for the social media as a result of that as well. Uh, That'll take us through to round 10. And then Rodney's here with uh, the Real Talk program. Remember, our text is up and running. And it's easy to text us. Text RCR with your message to 4040. Text RCR with your message to 4040. And um, we've had some texts coming. And uh, this one from Andrea. Testing, testing, one, two, three. Good morning, Paul. First time listening to RCR this morning. Love the mainstream media, uh, Normie News roundup and commentary. Thanks, Andrea. And your show, you say, makes commuting in Auckland traffic bearable. Ah, you're our first text. Andrea, I love the testing. One, two, three. Hey, Paul, love your shows. You helped start my days. Shout out to my cousin Shelley, who is listening live to you in Australia this morning as well. Keep up the great work, RCR. Cheers, Karen. Thank you, Karen. Here's another one. Uh, No name on this, but just to let you know how much we're enjoying your radio show. Absolutely loving the interviews where the hosts let their guests speak without being spoken over the top of. Yeah, that's a new thing. The topics are always interesting and much needed. Keep up the great work. You rock, XX. Loving RCR. Great topics and love the longer form interviews. Keep up the good work. Thank you for that. Uh, Just letting you know that I'm totally savouring RCR. Thank you so much to all of you for doing this and to the people who are funding it to make it happen. That's Grassroots New Zealand. Isn't that... Isn't that beautiful? Anyway... Keep it together, Paul I'm in the white and upper All our favourites so far But really enjoyed Lindsay's Easter message And Scott Nugent for teaching me about the Horrifics of trans medicine Which I was not aware of Also, all the unpacking of the disgraceful Posey Parker mob event You guys rock Fabulous to have professional journalists at the helm As well as all the other interviewers Great variety, learning lots I didn't know about Educational, laser look into what is happening around us Uh, And mainstream journalism has become a joke, just a PR firm of the government of the time. RCR refreshingly bringing conversation alive and difficult topics to the fore. Keep going. Cheers, Margot. Hey, guys, thank you so much for your texts. Uh, And you're the first texters. How about that? And all you have to do to text us is text RCR with your message to
4: rational discussion common sense open debate rcr reality check radio with paul brennan
0: dr david bell is a public health physician with global experience born and educated in australia he's worked at various organizations across the tasman the united kingdom europe including world health organization the who in geneva switzerland his research experience and interest in technology development gives him a unique understanding. I'm reading from the bio here of potential solutions for the most pressing public health challenges. Dr. Bell joins us from Texas, USA. Oh, so he's from Australia. Welcome, David Bell. Thanks for giving us some time on Reality Check Radio.
2: Thanks, Paul. It's good to be
0: here. <laughs> nice to have you. Well, what part of Australia are you from? Just curious.
2: Uh, originally from Victoria. Grew up in southeast of Melbourne, about on the coast, and then um, lived in Brisbane and up in Catherine for a few years in Northern oh, yeah. Territory. But I left about 2002, 21 years ago, I guess. Um, so I was in World Health Organization in the Philippines for seven or eight years, and then in Geneva and in a couple of organization, another organization, Geneva Foundation for Diagnostics. And then I, I yeah, I moved to the US for a job um, in a Gates lab in Bellevue near Seattle.
0: You say Gates?
2: Gates, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's not the foundation, but it was a development lab that he ran. And, yeah, now I, I work in biotech. I moved down to Texas with the family about a year ago um, to escape fascism, essentially. <laughs> um, and, yeah, this is so I'm consulting and, in biotech and global health.
0: When you look back to the home country, what do you make of it now? You obviously would have been following developments there as you, you could along the way, particularly Victoria.
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm surprised and, you know, obviously disappointed in what's happened. Um, but, yeah, it's certainly interesting psychologically. Um, I, you know, I never would have believed this would happen and most of the people I knew there would never have believed it would have happened, but now I think they're going along with it. Um, so I, it's an interesting contrast because living in the US has been interesting because the country is really split and you've got a lot of the country doing what Victoria did and thinking there's an existential crisis, everyone's going to die unless they wear a mask. And you've got another half of the country not doing anything and having exactly the same outcomes <laughs> in terms of COVID. So... Yeah. It's been an interesting experiment. And um yeah, um I think, you know, we, we're talking early, but I think um a lot of it, you know, Australia they've there's this amazing trust in government and you know, which I had when I was there, you just assume you know the government is there for your good. They're decent people, they always do the right thing. The media will always do the right thing. The ABC or you know New Zealand Broadcasting Commission will always do the right thing. They're the objective, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And um, yeah, I mean, there's never been a like a civil war, a war of independence, or you know, mass slavery, or, or the sort of oppression we've had here. We, you know, with the exceptions of indigenous populations in both countries, but they're small minorities, unfortunately, and. The vast majority of people in these countries have never, you know, who've grown up there have never had to fight or they've not got any folk memory of that. So I think, uh, you know, they haven't experienced fascism or communism. Um, when we were up in Washington State, this started in 2020, the people I knew from Eastern Europe or from other communist regimes, so they immediately picked with the, the messaging of what was going on. Um, I think, you know, you probably find similar in Australia, New Zealand, people from Eastern Europe and so on, but the vast majority of people, I think they have no idea what's going on around them.
0: That's what happens when you're wrapped in cotton wool.
2: Yeah, it is. And, you know, yeah, you're wrapped in cotton wool and, yeah, you just have this trust that people do the right thing Um, and, unfortunately, people often won't. Especially if they can make money out of doing the wrong thing, then they'll do the wrong thing. So that's what's happened.
0: I suspect there's a lot of follow the money in, in what we're about to talk about or am I being am I jumping ahead a bit?
2: No, uh, I mean, to me, yeah, that's supposed I mean, people read all sorts of things into it, but I think there's lots of follow the money and, uh, you know, the, the people who are getting the money are these huge corporations who have uh, histories of the largest um, criminal, you know, um, convictions for fraud in in history, so that's who we're trusting. You know the Pfizer's and the Mercks and so on. Um, they're companies that have a track record of lying about their studies, lying about their products, and being found out and fined for it, but making more money than they're fined. So,
0: just an aside: isn't the definition of fascism the um, totalitarian sort of <clears throat> association of Government and very large yeah
2: the corporate authoritarianism, that's what yeah. I mean, one of Mussolini's definitions was corporate authoritarianism. Now the other interesting thing is, is which people um, people think fascism is far right, um, which appeared in I know it appeared in the Webster dictionary only in the 1950s. Um, before that it was just you know corporate authoritarianism, et etc. But Mussolini and Hitler had, it's not irrelevant, had a history of being in the left.
0: They were socialists, they? or Hitler? Yeah,
2: mm-hmm. Nazis are National Socialist Workers Party. So, and I think you know, there's some, there's quite a similar. You've seen quite a similar thing, I think, in people that call themselves left in politics here and in Australia, New Zealand. That you know, they have these left ideals, but then they come to think that they're they're absolutely right in their ideals, and therefore any means is justified to impose those righteous ideas on others, and that's where you end up being a fascist.
0: And I think it's fair to say we've been seeing elements of that. It hasn't gone full-blown, you know, where we're under no. physical... Well, maybe we have been under physical threat uh, one way or another, but... Uh, okay, so um interesting hearing about... um you know, the a brief overview of your background. So the WHO, I think many people knew what that was. You, you know, you used to hear it every now and then in news bulletins and yeah. things like that. Now we, we really know that the WHO is there and, you know, they have, um, well, yeah, a lot of power in, in the world. You've been on the inside of it. First question, are they a force for good?
2: yeah so there's not a simple answer to that, and I think originally they were, and for most of their history, I think they have been the world would be worse off without them mm. um, I think to me at the for the last few years, I think they've been a net harm, they've been a net negative, but that doesn't mean in some countries they're not they don't do a good job you know it's a huge organization that you know it Promotes lockdown, impoverishment, and wealth concentration through COVID policies, but it also um, does a lot of work in, you know, reducing malaria, in helping countries to get technical capacity around those sorts of things, tuberculosis, um, HIV, etc. So, and it has made big inroads in, or it had up to 2020 in in those diseases. Um, there are countries that have very poor technical capacity in health and the WHO country office there forms an interest, forms an important part of, uh, you know, their essentially support for their Ministry of Health. And I know WHO people who, you know, essentially run disease programs in some countries because there isn't local capacity and do a good job. So, you know, there are places where if you, out the WHO they'd be worse off. But I think globally over the last few years, um essentially WHO have abandoned their principles abandoned the way they used to work. And they're they're working for corporate sponsors and there's a story behind that how the funding has changed. So it's a very different organization than it was a decade or two ago.
0: So that the funding and the change you mentioned is that really the the where the the switch was flipped between you know, doing, doing all those good, worthy things, and what we have come to experience well, through them, from them um, in the last few years, again, yeah, follow I, the money, is it?
2: I think so. Uh, when, they, when they started in 1946, a constitution was written, and you know, there's 56 or something countries, there's now about 194, but, but they were... Uh, most of, nearly all of their funds, about 80% or so, I think, was, um, they call it core funding. And countries were assessed based on their GDP. Rich countries give more, poor countries give less. And they give it to WHO, and WHO, with its you know, technical expertise that you hope they will have, would use that funding for where they thought they could have the best impact, which is essentially high-burden infectious diseases for most of their life. Um, and and it was based on disease burdens. You know, most people die of, say, TB, malaria, diarrhoea and kids, et cetera, pneumonia. So that's where they concentrate. Uh, in So two things have changed. One, that funding has become much more, they call it specified funding. So 80% of their funding now is more than 80% is specified, which means the country gives funding to the WHO to, you know, do this program in this place for these years, even employ these people to do it, have these meetings, et cetera. So they control what the funding, what the WHO does. And the other big change is this private money, which has come in. So the Gates Foundation is now within their top three funders, arguably maybe their biggest one, indirectly, indirectly. Um, And virtually all of their funding is the same as specified funding. So they give funding... To WHO to do a certain thing somewhere, so and there's corporate sponsorship and so on doing the same. And yeah, I was in WHO when this was sort of getting off the ground and the idea of public-private partnerships. And you think, gee, more money, it's a good thing. You know, these these people and these um, corporations are giving money for the greater good. You know, put some back in the community. You forget or you. You choose to forget that, you know, these corporations and individuals in the end, certainly the corporations, they have to make a profit for their shareholders. They can't give away their shareholders' money. So they're going to give money if they think they get, they're going to be better off themselves by doing so. So you get this increased money, which from these private public partnerships, and it's within WHO, but also other organisations. And it seems a good idea because there's more money, but you end up, the organisation ends up working for these people because they're saying where this money will be used. And the, yeah, the staff in the organisation, they know their salary is coming from you know, this source or that source, and that if they don't do X, then the funder won't give it next year. So the WHO has become, to a large extent, just a, an organisation that does other people's bidding. And we've seen that with COVID where they're chasing a disease that compared to other major diseases has a tiny impact on health. Uh, you know, it does. It's, you know, mm. mortality of 0.15% um, so, so yeah, or so. <laughs> and, and, and in old people, the average age of death is about 75 to 80. So mm. very little impact on life years. You know, the average person who dies from malaria is under five years of age. Wow. They yeah. lose 75 years and someone with COVID on average loses about two. So, you know, from a disease burden point of view, what they're doing makes no sense. But from the point of view of making a profit for these individuals, as we've seen, and for the corporations who are sponsoring them, it makes all sorts of sense.
0: You've mentioned Gates's name twice now, and uh, and a lot is said about him. Have, have you what, what sort of experience have you had? Any direct experience of, of working w- with this individual, and if so, what are your impressions of him? Because it's hard to get a fix on on Bill Gates, his motivations, um, you know, uh, what, what he's trying to do. Is he I mean, he's rich enough already. You would have thought, if it's it's all about money, what what do you think drives? Maybe you don't know, but if you do, what do you think drives him?
2: I mean, I mention him because he is, you know, the Gates Foundation is the largest funder. Um, But uh, I I don't you know I don't think it helps to dig into individuals in this. Uh, There's a, I mean, Bill Gates is able to do what he's doing because. We have a society that allows individuals to accumulate enormous amounts of wealth, you know, the wealth of whole countries, and he's not the only individual. You know, and you could argue, I mean, certainly the money from the Gates Foundation has done some good. It's not, you know, I think that there are ways that it's doing harm, but it's certainly done some good as well. And So it's complicated, you know, people in the Foundation and trying to do the right thing as well. So all this is complicated. But in the end, what matters is that you've got individuals who for good or bad intentions have the power to direct the health of whole countries now and they're doing that and directing the health policy of whole country so the WHO is based on decolonization human rights that community-based um, control of health etc we've moved with these public-private partnerships to the opposite where we have, you know, we're back to colonial days, essentially, where we have very wealthy individuals and very wealthy corporations directing the health of the world. And even if they mean well, um, they have no idea what the priorities of a mother in Burkina Faso is or, a, a, you know, someone in New Zealand um, because they have no experience of where those people are. They don't know those communities. They don't know the local culture, the local priorities. So it's even if these people mean well, it's completely inappropriate to have them formulating health policy. But that is what is happening, and we've seen in COVID. I mean, uh, you know, we had, you know, I mean, software entrepreneurs and you know heads of Facebook and whatever, essentially pushing the whole thing about lockdowns and masks and all the rest of it, which is completely against what was WHO policy pandemic. pandemics. So. 2019, WHO put out their pandemic influenza guidelines, where they say specifically in a pandemic and in an epidemic, do not close borders, do not quarantine healthy people. You know, you may close, you have business closes for seven to 10 days maximum, because after that, you're going to be doing more harm than good. So all this is laid out in writing by WHO, but you can, so, you know, something made them change. I think it's, the direction, you know, the, the, the sponsorship essentially, which is directing them.
0: Sponsorship the... sounds like a sport sort of oh, thing. It is.
2: Oh, well, that's what it is. It is. They're sponsoring WHO. And, you know, if corporate drug companies and so on, they're sponsoring WHO to, to improve their profits and selling drugs. So they're not going to put money into just training more health workers in some, you know, Af- sub Saharan African country. They're going to put money into selling vaccines and. Not other medicines. So otherwise it'd be stupid that they have to do this with their shareholders, but it's nothing to do with public health.
0: Going back a couple of years when Trump was still in, and he, I think he pulled the funding from WHO, it was what, $800 yeah. million or something like that. And the fact, well, everyone I think thinks that it's most likely this thing came out of the, the lab, which hmm. <laughs> just down the road from the wet market, uh, coincidentally. And, and there was talk about, you know, Chinese influence over the the head of the WHO. Should we be thinking about China in that, or was that just a, a bit of a misdirection play at the time?
2: Um, well, we should be thinking about individual countries. Yeah. I mean, the WHO, so yeah, it it's one country, one vote, essentially. Um, but obviously if you're a country like China or, you know, the US or something. You can influence a lot of other countries to vote for the one you want for when you're getting the Director General, for instance, because, you know, you vote for the one that we would like and we will give you a good deal on the next loan or something. So so, there is a huge influence of certain countries. Now, You can argue that China should have a big influence because China is 1.4 billion people. Yeah, or one point3 whatever so you know it's a lot of people they should have some say and that's fine if you've just got an organization that is you know naming diseases and giving a bit of technical support when it's asked etc but it makes no sense for an organization that is then telling people what to do and posing borders and cl- etc because then you've got Essentially, an organisation directed by countries that are authoritarian regimes, telling countries that are supposedly democracies what to do with their own people. And, you know, then you're not a democracy. So it's fine if WHO is just an advisory organisation, but if WHO is, as the treaty and the amendments to the International Health Regulations are changing it into... Um, if it's an organisation that directs our people and essentially tells people what to do regarding their healthcare, then it's, it's anathema to have the structure that they have.
0: I picked up on COVAX. I think that's uh, what uh, a WHO program for access
2: to what, yeah. COVID-19
0: vaccines or vaccines
2: it's, in general? It's COVID-19 vaccines for low- and middle-income countries. Right. Okay. Um, And
0: what caught my eye was the slogan. No one is safe until everyone is safe. Yeah. And the reason I picked up on that is because that's kind of the foundation for the narrative of persuasion for, you know, safe and effective. Everyone, 95 percent was the target here to take um, this vaccine. And can we call it a vaccine? We could talk about that. Um, but hmm. does that make any sense, uh, that
2: slogan? No, no, none at all. And, and the, the slogan, it's not just WHO, it's a WHO slogan, but, you know, UNICEF's got on their website Gavi, which is a vaccine alliance, CEPI, which is this organisation for pandemics, Welcome Trust, et cetera. They, they all have this um, no-one is safe until everyone is safe. So you can pull it apart a bit. You know, it's, a, it's nonsensical. If... Um,
0: that sounds good, though. I mean, it, sound,
2: it sounds good until you stop and actually use your brain. And so you know, if no one is safe until everyone is safe, that means the vaccine doesn't protect you. Because if the vaccine protects you, then you're safe as soon as you're vaccinated. You don't need all the others vaccinated. Oh, What does it matter? You're, you're, you're safe, yeah? Yeah. Um, and it also... <laughs> Right? <laughs> well, I'm mean, not suggesting the vaccine works or doesn't work, but they claim it works. They claim it protects you from severe disease. Therefore, why aren't you safe once you're vaccinated? So the, the slogan is basically saying the vaccine doesn't work. Yeah. It doesn't protect
0: you. It's code for it doesn't work.
2: Yeah. And, you know, it's so the problem, yeah, it's a completely empty slogan. And this is the. Slogan for their main health program, which tells you a lot about where the organization is, you know, intellectually and from public health point of view. But uh, COVAX is interesting. It's um, So the the idea was to vaccinate 70% of the people in all these countries, like sub-Saharan African countries, et cetera. This is it's the most expensive program they've ever done. The, the budget just to get two doses into Africans, which we know will then wear off in you know, X months, um, would cost about they estimated ten billion dollars, which is um, about three times the annual budget of WHO. But they 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 put in seven or eight billion at least, and they knew when they did they knew from you know pre, before Omicron. WHO did their own study, very large study in Africa of serology. They knew that 66% of people had positive antibody tests. So much more than two-thirds were already immune to COVID. Half the population is under not under 20. So they're basically kids and teenagers who are, we, we you know, one in a million, less than one in a million chance of dying from COVID. Less than 1% of the population is over 75, which is nearly everyone that dies from COVID. So you've got a population that's intrinsically at almost zero risk. The figures were showing that, you know, the the mortality in Africa is very, very low outside of a few countries like South Africa where people are older and fatter. Um, And they're already immune to the disease, yet you're going to spend $10 billion on vaccinating them with a vaccine that lasts a few months. When they have deteriorating... Figures for malaria, TB, HIV, and so on, which are each of those diseases as a mortality in the first four months of COVID, each of those diseases cured more than 10 times the number that died of COVID in sub-Saharan mm-hmm. Africa. So yeah. it, it, I mean, what, it, the only explanation for this that I can see is that it is making truckloads of money for the sponsors of the organisation. It's, it's certainly not a public health intervention.
0: It's interesting you mentioned Africa because very little has been said about the African experience during this in Mm -hmm. any of our media, which would have been handy to know because, you know, you can kind of work out the risk-reward, you know, parameters of that. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was just thinking that that line – What did I have here, the uh, one I just mentioned, Covax. No one is safe Mm. until everyone is safe. That actually sounds like it's describing more of a business model. It's a a description of a business model.
2: Yeah, it's certainly what you'd say if you wanted to just sell very large amounts of the commodity that makes them safe. yeah, I, it is. And, yeah, and, it's a and on
0: slogan. and repeat business, right? Because
2: a couple yes, of months, yeah. and
0: then you got to take another one. How many, Factor oh. that into years. That's what hundreds of potential yeah. doses. Of, yeah.
2: Oh yeah, I think well, Australia paid upfront or you know ordered something like ten doses for every person in the population. Um, I don't know what they're going to do with that, but.
0: Well, that's interesting because that was done quite a long time in advance, wasn't
2: it? Yeah. How did they know? Oh, there's a lot of interesting things there. Uh, yeah, how did they know? How do they know it didn't work? Well, they did not know because, I mean, Tony Fauci, who people know, um, wrote a paper a few months ago, co-wrote with two other authors, a paper that was published in Cell, which is a major journal, talking about the COVID vaccines and other vaccines for respiratory viruses and pointing out that vaccines for these are never going to work. Um, that there was no expectation that the COVID vaccine would stop transmission. He goes into very good detail on why it's not going to work in this paper, um, oh. as, if, as if the previous three years had never existed. But, I, I, of course, I knew that it wasn't going to work because this is what you expect from a mutating virus.
0: And that's about half of my interview with Dr. David Bell. And as I said earlier, the replay of this program after four in the third hour of that replay, you will hear the full version of that interview, which goes for about another 25 minutes. Uh, really interesting. Sorry, we were snookered for time. It happens. What can we do? Rodney's waiting. He won't be happy. He'll be grumpy if we delay him. I don't want to... Uh, I don't want a grumpy Rodney, though I can't even imagine Rodney being grumpy, actually. He is the most laid-back, pleasant, nice, hospitable, charming, beautiful human being. Let me put it that way, so I'd never get any grief. But uh, his show's coming up next. Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Thanks so much for listening this morning. It's great to be back after the long weekend, and we'll do it all again tomorrow on Reality Check Radio.
4: RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio.